Welcome to the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast, the first and only podcast covering Atari's last answers to the 8-bit gaming system. In episode 6, we hop into our Valkyrie space fighters and shoot up some jaggy saucers to review Lucasfilm's Rescue on Fractalus. And we go full tilt on one of Kieran's budget games, Advanced Pinball Simulator. Now here are your hosts, Bill, David, Kieran, and Michael. Happy New Year, XEGS fans! On today's episode, we're joined once again from the UK by Kieran Hawken. Uh, though now, now David is currently off on an OSI assignment for the show... And he'll be back next episode for a debriefing. In this action-packed episode, we'll be dodging some sketchy-looking jaggies in Rescue on Fractalus and beating a wizard with pinball in the budget game Advanced Pinball Simulator. First up, the news. Michael, what's been going on? Well, I think the last time I, uh, we had the show, I talked about my, um, my my new cord I got for my my X uh, my 800 XL is actually in a pile on my desk right now. Oh, no. <laughs> I've cracked it open to see what the problem is, so... That thing's on the fritz, so I'll be using the emulator this time around. Um, I picked up a pristine, I say pristine, the thing is so cherry, 410 tape drive. And I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the tape drive because that's the first uh, storage unit I owned. And I can never find anything. I'd, I'd, re- I'd save some uh, stuff on the tape and then never find it again. So, but <laughs> <laughs> It's at, you know, cycle, you know, 325. Just fast forward. Exactly. So- does it? I, I hear that even in storage, even the brand new ones that have never been opened, um, they have uh, the 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 rubber. Um, yeah, and I haven't cracked the thing yet to see if okay. that's a problem. But yeah, I'm gonna when I get my 800 up and running, I'll I'll see if that's a problem. I have a, a few tapes still around that I can actually put on the thing, but who knows? Even those things are yeah. any good. So yeah, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, I, I think I'll just put it on the side and go look, everybody, a tape drive. <laughs> Stick it in a glass case the end. Exactly. It's more for display than actual use. Yeah, I have uh, one that I keep with my 130XE, and I've never used it. Not mm. once. I don't even own a tape for it. I have too many bad memories of tape loading for my ZX Spectrum years, and I've heard that uh, Atari tape loading is is about a million times worse, so I don't want to know, really. <laughs> oh, it's, it's terribly slow. And, in fact, I remember uh, loading up... Um, some games and they, t- I, I swear they took at least 20 minutes to load and people told me different, but I think the newer tape players, uh, load games faster. Is that the case? Do you guys know there, that? There's some, there's some, there's some hacks. There's some OS oh, hacks where, yeah. where you basically compress it and, and yeah, there's, there's some weird stuff you can do. Um, I know Nier posted a, uh, a video about that, I think recently, but yeah, tape drive, I never cared about. Uh-huh. Um, I had a 1010 for a while as a kid and I just begged my parents to give me a test drive. <laughs> um, and yeah, what's, what's funny, I had a Timex Sinclair 1000, which is basically oh. what the, the ZX81, uh, the US mm. version of that. Yeah, and I remember when, when I got the Atari, I'm like, wow, like it doesn't have any, I, any sense of like the name of the file that's saved on the tape like the, the Timex did. So it was yeah. a little bit, it was even a little bit of a downgrade from that. Yeah. So. It was it was a crapshoot a lot of times. I had to figure out what it was and cross my fingers, and it, most of the time I just lost the stuff. It was ridiculous. I mostly played music in the background while I programmed through the tape I, drive. <laughs> yeah. In fact, if you you know you could play the uh, put the data and the tape the audio on the same tape mm-hmm. and listen to the same thing at the same time it was great. So I used to go, grab old tapes and you know record games on them, and then I get some sort of music or. Whatever I used to tape, so. Oh, I never tried that. That's cool. Yeah, I, that was weird. I used to. Uh, <laughs> I remember doing um, uh, the Odd Couple was on TV, and I'd record that. I know this is back before I owned a v- VHS recorder, so. <laughs> but yeah, it worked pretty well. Um, also, uh, I, I'm gonna say Zip. I, I think it's a, a C64 magazine. I'm guessing his name is gave his uh, picked his name after that, but. Uh, 
he's on uh, Atari Age, and he sold me an 850 serial interface and an SF354. Uh, actually, two of those. Those are single density, but still, I appreciate the fact that he offered those to me. And three floppy mechs uh, for a very reasonable price. He even um, got the shipping way down, so it was, a, it was such a pleasure dealing with him. I definitely give him a thumbs up on that. And also picked up a, my first Coco 2, a 3127. Uh, I don't have any software for it, but I'm sure I'll get something eventually. And I probably overpaid for a couple of paddles and a driving control, but uh, you know how it is when you get into the fever. You see these things on sale, and it's like, i got to get by them. Uh, driving controls, i got to have them. And there's one game that actually supports them. So, <laughs> <laughs> And um, picked up 10 box cards for my Odyssey 2. I, I started collecting a little bit of what, a little while ago, but I haven't really set the thing up, and and I got a good deal on the on the unit, so it's a it's in a box, it's nice, but um, I haven't really played it much. But um, you know, warning, you know, you sit sit there and think you're going to save some money uh, on on uh, shipping when the, the place is like I go through Shop Goodwill, which is a local you know used um, items uh, thing, and um, you know, going through all the trouble of getting to the place and jumping on the bus and going through the rain and then staying in lines. Sometimes it's just worth it just to give them the extra money and have them ship it to your house. It's completely ridiculous. But, uh, and, uh, I also was gifted a HP 9433, which is kind of a server. It's a 68040, uh, CPU with a 68882 math coprocessor. The thing weighs like an it's at least 50 pounds. It's a monster, but it was nice to add that to my collection. I, I don't even know how to start that thing up. In fact, I don't even think I have a monitor or even display anything on it, but, um, you know, hey, it's retro, and I like that sort of thing. Uh, that's I think that's about it for me. What about you, Kieran? Um, I've just finished doing my Atari 8-bit versus the RK series that we've spoken about on the show sure. before. Um, I've done the last episode, now I've run out of games to do. So if anyone does actually spot any games that I have missed, please tell me, because I'd love to know. Because there are 14 parts in total, and the OCD in me really wanted to get to 15, but I couldn't do it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've got to 14 parts. Um, Obviously, for those who don't know, in the series, I compare um, Atari 8-bit conversions to the original arcade games to see how they compare. And that includes official versions as well as sort of clones as well. And, um, yeah, I've stuck a, a link, a direct link to the, the playlist in my show notes. But, of course, you can just look them up on my uh, YouTube channel, Laird Slayer. Um, another thing I've done recently, um, which has um, gone down pretty well so far, is I've just released my first solo ebook, which is called The A to Z of Atari 2600 Games Volume 1. And it's available to buy from Amazon on .co.uk and .com. Uh, which did confuse uh, a few um, of our American friends when I posted the link in the forums because they couldn't work out why they couldn't buy it because obviously I'd used a .co.uk link. So if you have seen me post that around and wonder why it didn't work, just change it to .com and it will. Um, This is the first book in a series that's going to be looking at A to Z of, of games for all sorts of different systems. And of course, that will include the Atari 8 bit. And I have finished that book. So that should be coming pretty soon, the Atari 8-bit one. Um, Yay! Within, yeah, I mean, depending on when this this um, this episode goes out, but it should certainly be very soon. But I, I will um, post something up on the, the Facebook page when it comes out as well, so everybody knows. But uh, very good. 
I'll stick a link in the uh, show notes anyway, so people can buy the book. And please do. Um, it's a, it, it's very cheap. I think it works out at about um, three dollars um, for you guys and two pounds in in the UK. So um, it, it's very inexpensive. Um, another thing I've done uh, recently, which um, a lot of people have been asking me to do, and I was quite surprised that no one else had done it, was a video tutorial for the Atari Max flashcard which I, I've always thought is, is pretty much an essential item if you if you have um, an XE game system because it's very easy to set up and uh, then you just plug it in and away you go. And so on my YouTube channel, um, I've put a, a, a it's a sim, I would say it's a simplified tutorial. I haven't really gone massively into depth. I've, I've given you the basics of if you get the cartridge, you install the software on your PC. This is how you put games on it. This is how you play them pretty much to get sort of the the noob up and running, so to speak, with running, you know, uh, ROMs from a, a, a Max Flash car on their on their real XE game system. And of course, uh, that's a good way for the guys to play a lot of the budget games that I talk about on this show because uh, you don't need to have a couple of cassette recorder because a lot of those games have been converted into uh, images that will work with the uh, Atari Max. So the next thing I've done, um, going back to books again, actually, was uh, recently I was co-author on a book called Let's Go Dizzy, which was a story of the Oliver Twins. And it was uh, released, published by Retro Fusion Retro Books, sorry, in both hardback and softback and digital form as well. And uh, for those who don't know who the Oliver Twins are, they were um a uh, twins obviously um from the uk they were very prolific in um, terms of the, the software that they made um, but they were best known for their work for the company codemasters who people in the us will probably know as the they created the um uh game genie and they got in a lot of hot water with uh, Nintendo over it. But they were the, the Codemasters were the guys behind that. And, of course, Micro Machines was, was, was Codemasters. And, uh, but they're most famous. One of the most things uh, they're most famous for Codemasters were the Dizzy games. And uh, the Oliver Twins were the guys who created Dizzy and a lot of the games that, that featured him. So, I mean, they've, they've gone on to do a lot of things, pretty big things since then. But, obviously, Codemasters did um, publish quite a few games for the Atari 8-bit. And indeed, in the book, I do review Advanced Pinball Simulator, which we will be talking about later on the show. So um, there is a, another little tie in there with with, with that. <laughs> Would you say yeah. that that the Oliver Twins were uh, guys that went from their bedrooms to billions? <laughs> Big time, yeah. yeah they're, they're, nice. they're, all their all their, their their first they started off their first games were typing listings that were published in magazines. Oh, sweet! Oh, wow! When they were just kids, yeah. And then they landed um, professional jobs and sort of worked their way up. And they own the, they own their own company now. They have done f- for years um, in their oh. current company. Yeah, it's uh, Radiant World is their current company. But before that, they owned uh, Blitz Studios. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're amazingly prolific. If you go and look at the Oliver Twins website, you won't believe how many games they did. They're one of them when you look and you go, oh, wow, right. Do you know what I mean? And you, you really see what an impact they had um I mean, more more in the UK side, I suppose, but I think Americans as well will be very surprised about the amount of games that they did that they probably haven't heard of the Oliver Twins, but they have heard of the games, if you know what I mean. So, what are the what's the company do now? They do like uh, mobile games or uh, PC or 
console? Yeah, PC really. Their most, really? Their, their, their current product, um, which is pretty much the whole sole focus of the company right now, is a game called Sky Saga, which huh. is uh, it's a kind of online um, kind of MMO, I suppose, but more aimed at kids. Uh-huh. But it looks very similar to Minecraft in in terms of the way it looks. Oh yeah, but it's it's it looks, proved to be very popular. Yeah, it looks good. I'm actually looking at it right now. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, cool. That's their current product, and uh, so yeah, I do recommend everyone um, um, goes and goes and takes a look at that book. If you want to know a bit more about it, um, I will just say I have got a quite a detailed review on my YouTube channel as well, so you can uh, take a, a closer look at that book there as well. Uh, but last of all, um, my last bit of news is, um, again, because a lot of people kind of asked me to do this, I've set up two new um, Atari-related Facebook groups um, focused um, not on the uh, Atari bit, but on the one on the Jaguar and one on the Lynx. People have been around the Atari scene for, for years, will no doubt remember a very popular forum called Jaguar Sector 2, um, which shut down um, quite a few years back now, but... Those kind of people who, who were on that forum still sort of talk about the good old days and that kind of thing. So I, I chose to bring it back um, on Facebook as Jaguar Sector 3. Um, the group's been hugely popular. Um, I can't believe how quick it's taken off. And if you're into the Jaguar, it's well worth going and sticking your head in because we've uncovered numerous prototypes that, that hadn't been previously released. We've got them dumped. We've got the, the code out there. We've recovered loads of source code for Jaguar games. Yeah, and like design docs and stuff. Documents, I saw that. Yeah, 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 design documents. The amount of stuff we've uncovered it is absolutely unreal. And we've got loads of the actual Exitari Corp guys in there as well. Um, like, you know, uh, Farron Thompson, who produced um, quite a lot of the Jaguar's games. And he's been talking about the Jaguar version of Mortal Kombat 3 and stuff like that recently wow. in the group. So we've got some, we've got some really cool guys in there who are giving a lot of insight into, into those days, um, you know, talking about, you know, how the tramills worked and stuff like that. So, um, if you're interested in the Jaguar, it's definitely stick your head in because it, it's, it's mind boggling the amount of, um, stuff we've unearthed in, in, in the short time that the group's been going. Um, because of that, um, I've also started a second group, which I've literally only just done, um, called Link Sector, and that's to, to follow along the same lines um, with the links. And we're already getting off to a good start there again, along the same lines, picking up, um, you know, trying to find some of these these prototypes and source code and stuff like that. And again, we've got a few um, Exitari guys in there who are who are chipping in with stuff as well. So if you're into the links and the Jaguar, then um, I strongly suggest sticking your head into those groups. So how do you go about getting all this information? I mean, does it just come to you or do you seek it out or what? A bit of both. I mean, that that these are things that I've always been interested in anyway. I mean, I'm an Atari guy and I always have been. So I've done a, a great deal of research myself, especially over the years working for, um, you know, Retro Gamer magazine and stuff. I've spent a great deal of time trying to hunt down people and, and, and then finding out what they've got and what they haven't got. And, um, I think within the next year, there's actually going to be some pretty big announcements this year of, of stuff that we found and we're getting um, officially released. I've had to keep quiet on a lot of it because there's been a lot of um, legal complications. Ah. Hope, hopefully, some you know, over who owns the rights, things like that. Um, and hopefully some of those will, will be out of the way now and um, we can start getting a lot more of this, this, this stuff out there. I mean, I am going to be doing a few 
limited um, releases of stuff through the group in the next next couple of months as well for the for the Jaguar. And I've got something really, really, really special planned for the Lynx as well, but I cannot say any more about it right now. <laughs> but we're talking immediate future here. It's going to be announced very soon, but I don't want to say any more than that right now. Uh, teasers, you heard him here first. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on how quickly we get it edited and posted. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you will have, could have heard it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's it for my news. So, um, Bill, on to you. All right. So, um, I ended up finally buying an uh, 850 interface and uh, one of them, their Landtronics uh, serial to Ethernet devices, which is it seems to be mostly used for like industrial purposes. Like, I got a printer or some random device that I don't have to hook it up through a modem anymore, or you know, weird serial cables to a PC. Now, now you can hook them up to the internet basically, or, or your LAN. Um, but th- uh, they're basically used in the uh, in kind of the retro community as as a modem replacement. So I picked it up from uh, my local Atarian friend Marlon Bates, uh, and he actually dropped by to my house and helped me hook it up and test it. And uh, now I can actually get online uh, via Telnet on my 1200XL, and that includes um, connecting uh, to my Linux laptop and uh, and firing off from there and doing things like check my email or get an IRC, all sorts of crazy stuff. So not not just not even just BBSing. Uh, you know, because for those who don't know, there are actually BBSs that you can tell that to. Um, but actually, I can I can like kind of almost do work on my 1200. Wow. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, but in playing with it, I decided that I finally needed a a better video upgrade, cleaner video out for my 1200. Uh, so my friend Bob Woolley, who I've known forever, um, who did some original work to it that he didn't even recognize because it was like 20 years ago. <laughs> um, to, to clean up the the output, he uh, he took it, and I don't have it quite back yet. I, I think he dropped it off at a neighbor's house yesterday while we were out of town, but I didn't actually uh, get it back from him yet because he's out of town today. <laughs> and then at home, my DSL's down, so it's like a little point in it at all anyway at this point. But um, but yeah, so uh, I basically wanted to look nicer in eighty column text, um, which which it does, but without uh, the color, without the chroma output. Um, if I if I use um, composite, everything looks all artifacty and pink and green or blue or whatever. Um, and you know, normally you think like, well, you don't really need color; you're just BBSing or whatever. But actually, the the latest uh, alpha version of Ice T terminal, which Ate uh, Chamil uh, released a couple years back, um, supports some limited ANSI color uh, <laughs> options. So, so I felt I was oh missing gosh. out. I wanted I wanted to see like my deleted emails in red or whatever stupid wow. thing. Um, so uh, so yeah, that that's that's pretty interesting and, and and exciting. And of course, you know, checking email on the Atari means I can't also be looking at Facebook and Twitter and a million other things at once, and you know, watching YouTube or whatever. So it keeps me focused. It's kind of funny <laughs> doing it the old school way, like back in the nineties. And then uh, just yesterday, this isn't in the notes here, but just yesterday uh, we were out of town, my family and I, um, for an event my wife wanted to go to, um, which none of the rest of the family was involved in because it was yarn, basically. It was <laughs> basically it's called Stitches. It's a big like yarn expo. Uh, but Santa Clara, which is where it was at, is very close to Sunnyvale. So we, my kids and I headed over to uh, 1196 Bregas Avenue. Oh, Atari building, and, and mostly, I mean, I've, I've driven by there before a few times. I actually lived down in that area for a few years, about ten years ago. But um, but mostly, I was curious: is it still there? Because I've noticed there's been some big, like, you know, five, six, seven story high, brand new 
glass and steel looking office buildings going up in that neighborhood. They've been tearing down the old, you know, 1970s or whatever, you know, one and two story buildings. So I wondered like, oh my God, is the old Atari HQ still there? And it is, although, you know, across the street's gone and replaced and under construction. And, you know, two buildings down is gone and replaced and under construction. So it might not be there for very long. Yeah. Um, but while I was there, I'm like, well, I wonder, you know, there's all these, there's all these businesses in there. Because I actually visited it back in the 90s. I actually got as far as the uh, the lobby. They had a little reception table in the, in the front room. Um, that's gone because right now it's just a whole bunch of different random um, you know, tech businesses filling up the building. Mm-hmm. So I tried the door. I'm like, oh, the door's open. <laughs> <laughs> so I went inside and immediately took a selfie of myself with a big 1196 on the glass window behind wow. me so you could tell that I was in. <laughs> and then and then my kids and I just kind of like snooped around like, what the hell's going on here? Like, is there anything interesting? No, it's all basically just doors and hallways and stairs. And I mean, I got to pee in the restroom there where Atari people <laughs> used to pee, I guess. <laughs> so that was exciting. Um, <laughs> and then and then I um, I tweeted about it and I, and I realized, oh, I was wearing my antic t-shirt and I didn't actually take a selfie with like my t-shirt visible. I was wearing a sweatshirt or something over it. So Kevin Savitz of the Antic Podcast boos me. So I'm like, all right, fine. I'll start taking some pictures of me around the Bay Area. And then the last picture I took, I went to uh, One Infinite Loop in Cupertino where um <laughs> where Apple is headquartered right now before they get their spaceship launched or whatever they're doing. And um and yeah, I took a picture of myself shaking my fist <laughs> at the Apple sign at the <laughs> I was I was a little nervous, like, oh what's gonna happen if I like this you know, it's a Sunday or a Saturday and like it's afternoon. Like what's gonna happen here? But no, they actually have a an Apple store. And there's just all these people milling about and people taking selfies in oh, front gosh. of things. So I just look like, you know, except for I looked mean when I did it. <laughs> So when you went into the building, what was just an office building with a bunch of different offices or? Yeah, yeah, and like. Oh. The, the most I could see, like maybe in a window through one of them was like, okay, that's a room with like a, like a conference room with like a desk and chair. Gotcha. Absolutely nothing happening. You know, it was all, everything was closed. You can't see inside any of the actual offices there, so. Still pretty cool. Yeah, pretty neat to oh. just tromp around in the history before it gets demolished. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of scary. I mean, it's like, you, you think of these things as, you know, part of your, 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 past and then it's like they just wipe it clean because that's america we just kind of well done with that move it on yep <laughs> yeah see in this country something like that they they would um stick a plaque on the building and then no one be able to do anything <laughs> with it that's done that with, with with buildings here like a lot of people go to cambridge here to see the uh, sinclair building um and um, that's got a plaque on and no one can do anything with that building it has to stay as it is you know they would never be able to knock it down Yep. Um, anything like that because it's now a, a landmark. So, yep. so all, yeah. I need, all I need to do is go down the street, get get one of these like awards businesses to print me a plaque, and then go to the Atari building and just like glue it to the side and yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. have the city of Sunnyvale scratch it. I don't remember doing this. <laughs> I think it's funny in America where we just say, "Oh, it's fifty years old. It's historic." It's like so many Europe. It's like these are hundreds of years old. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there was a, a, a really good. Um, uh, a quote I read, and it was um, to do with uh, the difference between uh, it was the d- difference between England and America, and it said um, the difference is that in America, a hundred years is a long time. Yeah, <laughs> and in in England, a hundred miles is a long way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I thought that was the really sums it up. You know, you say to someone here a hundred miles, they'd be like. Pfft. Not driving that, you know. In America, you're like, yeah, it's not too bad actually. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's, 
the next day, you know. That's only yeah. two hours. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100 miles is nothing. I mean, that's at least um, as, as far as I went to get down to Sunnyvale from where I am at, at now. <laughs> so, like, yeah, that's nothing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. California is so stretched out. It's amazing. I sit there and go, how far are you away from this? Because I'll like look at where you are, mm-hmm. uh, Bill, and I'll look at where that thing is, and I'll go, holy crap, it's three hours away. Yep, yep. Yeah, I don't get to the Southern California like ever, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Plus the traffic. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so so I guess uh, my last bit of news is, uh, in case I hadn't mentioned it yet, I'm, I'm going to be putting together another one of my little mini Atari parties um, at the Sacramento Indie Arcade Expo. Uh, in April, and I think uh, Marlon Bates is going to be there again because he's also local, as uh, as well as Dan Devrend, who um, has also helped out at this and at uh, my big Atari parties in the past. So that'll Sweet. be cool, showing off the old stuff to all the new kids who are trying to do their indie games and oh wow, show them how it used to be done. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how quaint. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'm just going to make this look retro. <laughs> I'm not going to actually know, right? do it And retro. I look at it, your pixels are diagonal. What are you thinking? That's not yeah, – right. Everything's so crisp and clean. It's like, uh, yeah. Where's, where's the artifacting and blur? And I need to I see, know. Like, I need to see weird lines when I move the paddle, right? Yeah. I know. All right. Okay. And uh, I got a quick question for you. Oh, yeah. So the um, or may, maybe a, st- a statement, but uh, I'm interested in your uh, your work on the 850. So maybe if you can share that information with me and everybody else interested, because I would like to get uh, online with mine and and actually see maybe even make the uh, XEGS website uh, compatible. Who knows? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually did a uh, kind of an overview, and I um, and I think the episode just came out what yesterday um, over on Antic. So Ooh. go check out Antic episode 40. Um, and you can hear me going on about how I got onto BBSing and Telnet and IRC and web browsing and stuff uh, via my 1200. So, and if if anyone has any questions, feel free to email me or post on a forum somewhere, and hopefully I'll I'll find it. So very cool. But yeah, I'm not. The, I'm definitely not the first to do this. And, no. uh, and you know, I had an 850 once upon a time, of, like as a hand me down from someone random, like here, take all my Atari stuff, okay? And I I gave it or sold it. I don't even remember what I did because I had no use for it because I, I knew right. that people were doing this, getting online with the 850 or, or hooking them up to a to a Linux PC. But like I've got laptops; they don't have serial ports anymore since like you know forever. Um, oh, yeah. But these devices, like the Lantronics, like. Stuff like that used to be in the like three and four hundred dollar range, and I'm like, oh, I'm never doing that. Right. And then, and then I heard Marlin on the Antic episode talking about how he got his uh, Bates Motel BBS online. He's like, oh yeah, Lantronics thing is like fifteen dollars. I'm like, doink, what? what did you? <laughs> <laughs> hey Marlin, you got any of those? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had one when I was a kid too, but I think we just hooked the printer up to it, and I didn't do much with it, so. Uh, but I heard great things about them. I was like, people can do so much with them. I, I don't think I actually used them for yeah. anything. I had a Direct, so. direct Connect uh, SX212 uh, 1200 baud modem. That was that was like the thing I got online with as a kid. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess we should probably get on to reviewing stuff. Well, we're going to talk about Rescue on Fractalis. Um, it is an Atari Corp published game. It was published in 1987. The model number is RX8063. Genre is first-person 3D rescue slash shoot 'em up. And the developers were Lucasfilm LTD. That's Lucas Computer Division Games Group, led by Peter Langton. Programs were David Fox and Lauren Carpenter. Graphics were done by Charlie Kellner, Gary Winnick, James St. Louis, and Douglas Crawford. Sound was Peter Langston and Charlie Kellner. Based on a 1984 original version, U.S. Disc, published by Epix in 1984, and in the U.K., it was Disc and Tape, published by Activision in 1985. 
So here's the description from the back of the box. Get those spacers off your planet and fast. You've joined the elite rescue squadron flying to the hostile planet Fractalus to confront the ruthless enemy Jaggies head on. Your mission is to rescue Ethercore pilots shot down and stranded on the brutal planet and help lead the forces to victory. For the merciless Jaggies, onslaught must be stopped to preserve the future of the galaxy. Sounds easy, but don't let it fool you. It's tough enough to navigate the mountains and canyons of Fractalus. Try doing it while destroying enemy gun emplacements or dodging suicide saucers. Don't waste any time. The pilots won't last long in the poisonous cyanitric atmosphere of Fractalus. The game's screen features first-person perspective in both flying and rescue sequences. Don't try to memorize the three-dimensional landscape because it's changing every time you play the game. As if it wasn't enough, the better you get, the harder the game becomes. There is even instrument-only night flying in more advanced levels. Rescue on Fractalus. You've never faced a challenge as tough as this before. So let's start with playing the game. Um, the intro starts with the LucasArts title. And then you have the mothership uh, with the Valkyrie launch sequence. Uh, title screen presents you with the view of the cockpit as the music plays. title of the game and the year and developer, uh, which is copyright 1987 Lucas LTT, will cycle back and forth at the top of the screen. Uh, default starting level, which is number four, uh, will be seen at the center of the screen. And pressing option will start the Droidcraft Droid demo. This demo will shoot uh, the Jaggies, but will not pick up any pilots. By pressing the fire button or start, you can launch your craft and start your mission. And, and the, the, the launch sequence is like through the tube, like 1970s Battlestar Galactic style. It, totally, right? yeah, yeah, totally reminiscent <laughs> of that. Also known as color cycling effect, but... Uh. Yeah. <laughs> but very cool. <laughs> you can also press the uh, select button, which will take you to the menu screen, which is what I call the menu screen. Uh, this screen shows you all the same info as the title screen, except you have the uh, screen is now a black background and has text in bands of color, which is a very nice uh, shade of purple to orange, I think. Ranking level, last score, and high score are now shown, and the highest scoring aces will appear after 30 seconds. The aces screen displays the top aces by name, level, achievement, and their score. The fall aces are members of the development team. It's listed from highest score to lowest score. Uh, top score is Fox, and that's uh, programmer David Fox. Uh, Lauren, which is programmer uh, Lauren Carpenter. Dragon, which is graphics, sound, music, and programmer Charlie Kellner. P. 
PSL, which is lead and sound, Peter Langston. Gary, which is graphics designer Gary Whitnick. Croc, which is graphics designer Douglas Crawford. JSL, which is graphics designer James St. Louis. And DL, which is David Levine, which is a ball blazer, which is unusual because he wasn't involved in the game, but that's a nice tip of the hat. Play, play tester, maybe? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Who knows? Um, but we'll talk more about their specific roles in uh, later in this article. Uh, pressing select here will allow you to increment the levels up to level 30. After that, the roller to level 1, and holding a shift and select will decrement the levels. Uh, the instructions say the you increment the levels by moving the joystick forward. I didn't experience this feature, but I'm also using an emulator, which is uh, the Atari 800 emulator. So um, had you guys seen this uh, feature, or did you even try it? I I think just moving up and down for me changes level one by one, but that's yeah. Okay. Maybe they meant maybe they meant left and right because I know I didn't bother trying that because it didn't occur to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you well, know, manuals do have typos, so that's true. That's true. <laughs> so before we start playing, let's understand what those levels actually mean. Uh, level one, there are no jaggies, aka there's no enemies, so uh, that makes it pretty easy for you to play. Uh, levels two and three, there are a few jaggy gun emplacements. After that, uh, levels 4 through 15, number of jaggies increases as you progress through the levels. This means that there are increasing amounts of gun placement, saucers, and pilots to rescue. And from 16 to 30, after 9 minutes, day will fade into night. During night, you have to fly by your instruments, but the weapons fired from the jaggies or from your ship will actually light up the night sky, which will outline the mountains momentarily. After about 9 minutes, it will turn back to day if you can survive that long. So let's talk about the controls. Uh, joystick controls. These are inverted. That means that pushing forward causes your plane to uh, descend. Pulling back makes it climb. Pushing left and right banks to left and right. You cannot do a complete barrel roll or loop, unfortunately. And, of course, the fire button uh, fires your antimatter, bubble, or AMB torpedo. Uh, one shot at a time, unfortunately. Keyboard controls. When you're flying... Pressing the right arrow or option increases your thrust. Pressing the left arrow or select decreases your thrust. Pressing L or start lands your craft. When landed, pressing S or start will turn the systems on and off. Pressing the A or select opens the airlock. Pressing B or option and select at the same time fires boosters, which takes you back to the mothership if it's in range. And at any time, pressing brake or option and select and start restarts the game at the beginning. By the way, your current score will be lost, but not your high score. So the cockpit environment. Let's talk about each section. So the main window, this is the window to the world and which you will spend most of your time looking at. The only thing displayed here is your crosshairs. At the very top of the screen, you have your compass, your score, and display informational messages such as something like pilot and range. In the bottom center, you have wing clearance bar. This tells you how far from each wing the surrounding mountains are. If the bar on either side is completely disappeared, your wings have touched the mountain and will suffer some damage. The artificial horizon, labeled AH, indicates your ship's current bank, left or right, and climb up and down. Altimeter, this is shown as a two-colored bar overlapping one another. It is labeled A. The blue bar uh, shows the ship altitude above the ground, and the red bar shows the elevation of the ground. If no blue bar is showing, you've either landed or crashed. <laughs> this is your captain speaking. We've either landed or crashed. Or crashed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, targeting scope. This is an overlay with another set of crosshairs. It targets gun emplacements and saucers, as well as down ships. When there is more than one object in view, the, only the closest object will be targeted. Enemy lock-on indicator. When these six lights are randomly flashing, this means the scanners are picking up stray radiation. When the lights go out completely, the enemy is beginning their lock-on process. These lights will begin to turn on one by one, starting from the left. When all six lights are lit, the gun emplacements will start firing. To lose a lock-on, perform an evasive maneuver. I'm guessing listing left or right or something. Where do they go? There they are. They're listing lazily to the left. Go left, left. Boy, this guy knows some maneuvers. So. Yeah, to me, I, I, you know, a long time ago, I looked at this game and I just saw blinking lights, and it just seemed like, like in Star Raiders 2, which we'll eventually review, where it's just like just random crap, just oh yeah, just in, you know, just atmosphere. But no, it's actually useful. That's that's incredible. There's so much information here that's useful. At the same time, it's kind of overwhelming. I think so. Um, energy level indicator. This displays your energy level, and it's labeled by E. As your levels are depleted, the color will change. It will flash and beep when the levels are critical. You get a partial charge from each pilot's energy cell when you recover them, so about one-seventh from a regular pilot. Your ship gets fully charged when you return to the mothership. Long-range scanners. These are labeled LR. The scanner picks up pilot's emergency beacons and displays it as a blip on the V-shaped field of view. The bottom of the V is your ship. When you are within two units of the down pilot, the scanner will begin flashing and beeping. When this happens, you can land and pick up the pilot. And the bottom left, you have thrust level, which is consists of eight lights. This is the more they're lit up, the higher the thrust. And the other one is dangerous attitude, <laughs> altitude. Sorry, the other one is dangerous altitude. This also consists of eight lights, and the more lights lit up, the closer to the ground you are. When all the lights are lit up, you have landed, or I guess crashed. <laughs> and in the bottom right. Uh, the next three appear as horizontal lights, uh, shields on. This is the leftmost light and indicates that your Dirac mirror shields are activated and drawing power. The shield reflects all known forms of energy, but it can't handle the side of a mountain at full throttle. Mothership. This appears in the center of the three lights. When the mothership is in range, this will flash, beep, and display mothership at the top part of the screen. Airlock open. This rightmost light indicates that the airlock is open and range to pilot, labeled with an R. This shows the relative distance to the pilot, which is also displayed in the long-range scanner. When no pilot is sensed, a zero is shown. Enemies destroyed, labeled with an E. This shows the number of gun emplacements and saucers you have destroyed. And finally, pilot quota, or rescued, labeled with a P. This shows the number of pilots you must rescue to move on to the next level. This will decrement each time you pick up a pilot. When you've reached your quota, it will start flashing. Any pilots who rescue past your quota, the number will increment. Let's talk about the gameplay. Okay, after launch, a ship enters the atmosphere and flies above the ground. This is where you take control. Fighting those jaggies. The most common jaggy weapon are the gun emplacements and appear as green domes atop mountain peaks. They can fire high-energy ion beams at your ship. Destroy them, get them in their crosshairs, and fire your A and B weapon. It's probably a good idea to destroy all the gun emplacements before you land in an area. You can circle around the area until you get them all. Suicide saucers are also a danger. Their tactic is to crash in your ship, which does more damage than the weapons fire. Rescue and pilots is your number one priority. Watch for pilots on your long-range scanners. 
When you're within range, your scanners will flash and beep. Land your craft and turn off your systems. If you are in range, the pilot in range message will be displayed, and you will see the pilot running towards your ship. Most pilots wear white helmets, but if you see one with a purple helmet, that's an ace pilot. Be on alert for pilots with green helmets. These are jaggies in disguise. They'll jump up and attempt to break in by breaking the glass in your cockpit. Click and turn on your systems to fry that sucker. Listen for a knock and open the airlock door. When the pilot is safely on board, you are clear to take off. Do not turn on your engines or systems until the pilot is inside your craft or he will be fried to a crisp. If you find yourself off the mark, you'll see a message, ship off scope, and you will need to reposition. Try zeroing in by turning your systems on again and rotating your ship until the down ship is centered in your long-range sensors. If you're still off scope or get the message pilot too far, activate your thrusters, move closer to the ship, and turn off your systems again. If you can't see the pilot, then the downship is probably in the valley. Move your ship once again to position it so that you're level with the downship. Yeah, we don't we don't want those guys climbing a hill or anything. They're, yeah, and I was thinking about that. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Come on, I work wanna, for it a little bit. I want to survive, but I don't really want to climb up the. Uh. Yeah, it's like a Uber. You just call it, and it <laughs> rises to the door and picks you up. <laughs> The mothership will return to your sector whenever you've collected enough for your quota or when it is detected that your energy levels are low. If you return to the mothership before you've rescued your quota of pilots, you will continue on the same level, but you will not earn a bonus point. If you continue at a lower level, you will forfeit your previous score and start over. Uh, so if you, if, if, if you uh, run out of energy, you get no bonus, basically. Yep. yep. And... and uh, and if you wuss out, then... <laughs> yeah, don't wuss out. Come on. You can do it. Push forward. <laughs> Not that hard. Okay, game over. If a game ends, fireworks are seen, but not at a celebratory event in your honor, but with your craft bursting into flames. Recording your achievements. If you're good enough, be able to record your high score... Uh, using your keyboard or joystick, enter your name next to the points you have accumulated. Of course, this cartridge has no battery backup, so all scores will be lost when the game is reset or the Atari is powered down. So here's scoring. Here's a list of points that you can obtain by performing certain actions. They are listed from highest to lowest score. Rescue an ace pilot, that's 2,000 points. Each pilot returned over quota is 1,000 points. Each pot returned to the mothership is 500 points. Destroying a saucer is 250 points. Level complete is level number times 200 points. Rescuing a pilot is 200 points. Destroying a gun emplacement is 100 points. And each second of flight is one point. Okay, Bill, you want to tell us a little bit about history and trivia of the game? Sure. So uh, if you paid attention to, to Michael's description of the, uh, the heads-up display, you might recognize a little bit of Star Raiders in there, and um, they were, of course, inspired both by Star Raiders and, of course, like everything else space-related, Star Wars. Um, and there's a little bit of a joke about a, a Star Wars relation uh, that I'll 
share in a little bit. This game is a 64 kilobyte cartridge, so it's about eight times bigger than the old cartridges uh, back in the 80s, like Pac-Man, which were 8K. Working titles for this game were Rescue Mission and Behind Jaggy Lines, uh, that's J-A-G-G-I. The latter actually made its way out to the pirate community, and we'll have a link to where you can uh, to download and pirate that, I guess, <laughs> over, <laughs> over, at, <laughs> over at Atari Mania. Um, the word Jaggy, uh, which is the name of the alien race, obviously, uh, as mentioned before, and also from that working title, uh, is kind of a joke about the jagged, uh, stair-stepped pixel graphics seen on home, home computers at the time. There were lots of articles and interviews about this game and the formation of Lucasfilm Games. Uh, we'll have a link to a few in our show notes. Uh, here's some titles of them. Ballblazer and Rescue on Fractalus. The Lucasfilm Computer Division Games Project is Born. A very brief personal history. And that's actually by Peter Langston at his website. Um, he also has a link to the press kit for that. Um, Rescue on Fractalus video from a 1984 press conference over at David Fox's website. Um, it contains... Only in-game graphics and no special effects. They did no post-processing to this. So um, during any of the voiceover acting that you'll hear, this, um, the screen is actually black, and they did that on purpose. They wanted to show how good the graphics are without confusing people who are watching it over whether any of it was faked, basically, was you know computer graphics or you know traditional animation or anything. Um, they wanted you to see like this is exactly what the Atari is doing, which is which is pretty awesome. Tomorrow's Promise article and uh, Changing Lives David Fox interview are over at Electron Dance, and we'll have links to that. Um, I actually also dug up uh, an InfoWorld June 4th, 1984 article. Atari unveils Lucasfilm Games. Star Wars Company touts edge-of-the-art sound graphics. Of course, <laughs> that's like a month before Atari just tanked, right? 1984. <laughs> so short-lived uh, marriage there, sadly. Sadly. Um, Antic Magazine, uh, Volume 3, Number 4, August 1984, uh, Lucasfilm and Atari, Creative Partners. Uh, again, that's, you know, gonna be right after the, the fall of Atari Inc. and the rise of Atari Corp. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, magazines take three or four months lead yeah. time back then. Seriously. Uh, more recently, Retro Gamer, Issue Number f- uh, 44, which I have a copy of on my shelf, uh, from November 2007, so it's becoming vintage now, ten years old. Um, The Making of Rescue on Ractalus, and, uh, uh, actually, I have a link to a PDF about that. And Super Adventures in Gaming from 2013 has a review of the Atari version. So what's this fractal we'll keep talking about? Um, so in this game, uh, it uses a fractal landscape, which is a surface generated using a stochastic, also known as random, um, algorithm designed to pr- uh, produce fractal behavior that mimics the appearance of natural terrain. In other words, the result of the procedure is not a deterministic fractal surface, which I'll get into in a sec, um, but rather a random surface that exhibits fractal behavior. Thank you, Wikipedia. Hmm. Um, <laughs> continuing on in a different Wikipedia article, um, a fractal is a mathematical set that exhibits a repeating pattern displayed at every scale. It is also known as an expanding symmetry or evolving symmetry. Um, and if you've ever been to the grocery store and seen a Romanesco broccoli, um, that's a really good example of a fractal found in nature. I actually call it, <laughs> like, oh, look, it's a fractal broccoli. Um, it's it's kind of a cone-shaped plant. Like, the, you know, you, from a distance, you see this little cone-shaped thing, like a head of, head of broccoli, but it's a cone. But then you look closer, and... The cone itself is made of all these little cones. And if you look at all the little cones it's made of, those are made of little cones. So it goes like at least three levels deep of like cone, cone, cone. Um, that, that's a perfect example of fractal in nature. Um, wow. I feel like we should have like, you know, screenshots of the game on our website and then a picture of that broccoli. <laughs> 
Um, I also found a link uh, on YouTube. It's a Big Brains Small Films documentary by IBM. It's a very short little video. It's a, a interview and um, kind of a history of uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, uh, the father of fractals. Um, and I think it was actually recorded shortly before his death, So, which I think was 2010. Um, so, yeah, this definitely is, it's definitely an interesting little video. So Lucasfilm, um, the Lucasfilm connection. So in 1980, Lorne Carpenter uh, gave a present- presentation at SIGGRAPH, which is a computer graphics conference, uh, where he show- showed a film called Vol Libre. It's a two-minute computer-generated movie. It showcased his software for generating and render- rendering fractally generated landscapes. Um, and it was actually met with standing ovation. And I-, I-, I looked back at it, and I went, holy crap, this was from 1980? Mm-hmm. Like, wow. I mean, because it looks really good. It starts out... What's interesting is it starts out with very, like, basic-looking shapes, and you're like, okay, what's this about? And then they start getting more and more detailed. Like, each, like, the triangle divides itself into more triangles to more triangles, more triangles, and eventually you've got this thing that literally looks like a mountain with snow on top and, like, grass and stuff. And then you start flying around through it. It's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, he was immediately invited to work <laughs> at Lucasfilm's computer division because they would have been stupid not to, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and there he worked on the Genesis effect scene of Star Trek II, yeah. The Wrath of... Um, which featured an entirely fractally landscaped planet. So it was the the effect where... They dropped the super weapon or whatever Khan wanted to call it, and this ugly, beaten up, you know, crater filled planet becomes like beautiful Utopia Eden. Um, sorry for the spoilers if you haven't seen Wrath of Khan. Um, so then they said, hmm, let's do this in a video game. And that's, that's where this wow. game came from. So we'll have a link to a, uh, the article about Lauren Carpenter himself over on Wikipedia, as well as the Vol Libri um, video, which you can find on Vimeo. Um, and I actually saw, I, I don't know if it was uh, Lauren. Or Tom Duff, or both of them. They actually spoke at my college back in the mid '90s. Uh, I um, I went to college uh, north of basically where they were. They were down in Marin, I think, and I was up in Sonoma at school. So they came up and did a little CS talk uh, briefly during lunchtime one day, and they actually complained that while the Genesis effect scene was complete from beginning to end, they actually the the director, the editor cut it so they could show this lame reaction scene of Kirk and Spock, like, oh, mm-hmm, yeah, interesting, you know, like, oh, why? We spent all this money and time, and it's like, it's not cheap to build this stuff. Yeah. Um, but then there was another issue, so this is completely randomly generated terrain, and there was actually a bit where the camera flew right through a mountain. <laughs> so they had to go back and re-render just that part to cut a slice out of the mountain. Oh, um, and, yeah. And, and because it was, because there was all this extra math going on to, like, force this mountain into a valley like in the middle of it so that the camera right. wouldn't go flying through pixels um it was actually it took a lot longer to actually render that little sequence <laughs> <laughs> um so in our show notes we'll include clips of the genesis effect scene um over on youtube that somebody stuck there and uh the, in the the link for that the the split in the mountain in question i found it it starts appearing at about a minute 49 and it's kind of hilarious because all of a sudden like this mountain splits in two as it flies towards you i mean when you're watching it, it's just like boom you're just Flying and you don't notice it, but if you know what to look for, yeah, um, yeah, and then five seconds later, which is funny that they did it. You know, like if they would have done it five seconds earlier, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the split to talk about in the mountain. But five seconds later, that's where you see Kirk looking up at Spock, like, oh, 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 that was cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I also have a link to um uh an a, a video 
about the Genesis effect that's actually from back then, and it's an ILM commentary, uh, uh, Industrial Light and Magic commentary on how that effect was made. So if you like 3D animated movies, and who doesn't, um, keep in mind that Pixar actually started out as the graphics group inside Lucasfilm in 79, and it spun out onto its own in 86. And of course, we all know Toy Story came out a few years later and was awesome, and that just kind of began this whole, like, half the movies that come out are 3D kids movies now. Yeah. Um, so Pixar was bought in uh, 2006 by Disney, and uh, that is the same Disney that you may have heard of. It's got a mouse as a logo. Um, that uh, actually bought Lucasfilm itself six years later. So what happened to Lucasfilm Games? Um, they changed their names to LucasArt, uh, sorry, LucasArts in 1990, and sadly it was shuttered in 2013, uh, shortly after the Disney acquisition. And today it's just a small publishing and licensing company. <coughs> kind of like today's Atari. <coughs> <laughs> Hashtroids. Oh, boy. <laughs> so um, there's a myth, which is apparently true, that George Lucas, in uh, checking out this game while they were working on it, um, insisted that it had a uh, have a combat element, because uh, it didn't. It was uh, purely a rescue 3D game. And they well, how do I shoot? Well, we don't shoot. Make it right. Shoot. Yeah. Is my horrible impersonation of George Lucas <laughs> during that conversation. Um and uh, he apparently also suggested the alien imposter. Oh, spoilers. Uh, I think you already spoiled it before. But yeah, the, a- the aliens can impost and, and break your w- yeah. windshield. Um, so David Fox's concept uh, of the game was a high-speed X-wing-like craft uh, locating down pilots on a hostile mountainous planet. Um, and then here's a quote uh, from the Making of article over in Red, uh, from Retro Gamer magazine. Um, ironically, as the rights to use Star Wars characters in home and arcade video games had been awarded to Parker Brothers and Atari in a hugely profitable deal, it didn't make financial sense for Lucasfilm to use its movie licenses for in-house products. So the games groups could only use original concepts at the time. So they, so this new games group couldn't actually make Star Wars games. Um, I know we can't use Star Wars characters, but we can use Star Wars places, vehicles, weapons, David speculated in his pitch. Uh, any similarities between this game and the rescue scene you know, on the ice planet Hoth are uh, purely coincidental, he added humorously. <laughs> so, um, so finally, uh, Rescue on Fractalus is probably the first uh, video game to include a jump scare. Um, I think one of the m- other big ones you might have heard of is uh, Alien vs. Predator. Probably on the uh, on the Jaguar, uh, just stuff happens and you jump out of your chair. So the, uh, we'll have a link to the jump scare trope over at TV Tropes, but there's actually even a trope specifically about this game over on TV Tropes. So I'll have a link to that as well. Um, David Fox says, I still get emails from people recalling their first experience with the Jaggy Monster. People have fallen off chairs, let out an inv- involuntary scream that brought college dorm roommates running to see if they were okay, and kids having run out of the room crying to their mothers. I don't feel too good about that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's amazing, though, that they put this, they, they rendered this on a supercomputer, if I remember correctly, and then they decided, I wonder if we could do this on the 6502. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I might boil this down. That'll be a fun project. This thing. Oh my god. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, Michael, back to you. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some of the differences from the original version. Uh, the card version lets you select higher levels, up to thirty, opposed to the uh, sixteen from the original. The cart version can be controlled by console keys too. Um, so you got you can actually use the start, select, and options, and a combination of them. Uh, useful if you don't have a keyboard, like your XEGS might not have. Also, the European tape and disc versions are missing the preliminary spaceship intro. I'm sorry to hear that. The uh, European disc version has an additional Activision loading screen, which 
I actually like the Activision loading screen as well, so it's not really a loss there. And finally, the instructions for the disk version covered the Atari 8-bit, Commodore 64, and Apple II. Had a lot more cool artwork inside it, which is very true. It's beautiful. It's uh, basically a lot of production value went into that that the, this current version doesn't actually have. So, And models are made of crashed ship exteriors, draggy UFOs, and Valkyrie's ship and cockpit, and more, and used in the manual and promotional material. Yeah, that, that's cool. They basically said, well, we're at Lucas. Let's have some of our model makers make some, like, Star Wars quality models just to, you know, stick on the poster or in the, <laughs> like, in the manual next to, like, how to turn your Atari on. That's, that's yeah, that's awesome. amazing. It's, it is really awesome. Yeah, they went uh, all out. I know, seriously. Really had some really uh, nice production value. Uh, on the disc version, the intro screen with the big mother, mothership and Valkyrie launch sequence actually runs while the game is loading from the floppy. The in-game la- launch sequence, uh, combined with a Viper launch scene from Battlestar Galactica, which you mentioned, Bill, with a pan down uh, to the planet for the beginning of the original Star Wars. Lucasfilm games use Unix on mini-computers to create Rescue and Ballblazer. Uh, they were used uh, for cross-assembly, serial upload to Ataris, experimenting with flight dynamic simulators, storyboard editing, and things uh, we find mundane today, such as email and file sharing. You can learn all about it thanks to a paper uh, by Peter Langston, wrote in 1985 while working with Bell Communications Research, uh, the influence of Unix operating systems on the development of two video games. And we'll provide you links to that. And here's a fun fact. The landscape is a 16 by 16 mesh of edges repeating forever over a plane. Whatever that means. <laughs> well, basically, like, the, the, the world is a square and it wraps around on all four edges, but, like, it really doesn't feel like it. Like, it just feels oh. like it just, the game feels like it goes on forever, but it's just this little 16 by 16, you know, oh, wow. valley, valley and mountain. So. Oh, that's cool. And, you know, it's funny, in the manual, they tell you to loop around to, you know, I mentioned before, to circle the mountains to shoot everything. But it'd be interesting, because I thought that in the game, when I, I'd fly around, things would change so much that things would just disappear. So it's, yeah. as long as you're staying with your 16 by 16, you're probably okay, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think. Um, well, I mean, it, it's like it's like going all the way around the world. Like, it's, it's just a really small, small oh, world. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so credits from the manual. Uh, we got David Fox uh, directed the project and created the concept, uh, transition scenes, animation, and documentation. Lauren Carpenter of Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Project did the 3D fractal landscape image generation and co-created the concept. Charlie Kellner was responsible for animation, music, sound, and flight dynamics. Gary Winnick provided animation. David Levine provided support. Peter Langston, the game's group leader, contributed to the concept and designed night flying, music, and sounds. Type author at the title screen to see the credits. Uh, from the level launch bay, press break or start, select, and option game abort to get the title screen. The symbol on the jaggy spacesuit are the developer's initials sideways, and the programmers posed in costumes as pilots for the packaging manual. Take that electronic arts, because you know they always had like they always had like Bill Budge on the inside. Or oh yeah, whatever, and yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they kind of look like it too. They don't look yeah. like actors. So. <laughs> look like nerds dressed up in costumes. Exactly. Awesome. They're cosplaying their own game and pose. <laughs> Okay, what's the legacy on this game? Well, it was ported to the 5200, C64, Apple II, Amstrad, P- CPC, 
ZX Spectrum TRS-80 color computer. Yeah, and oh, I, checked, I checked on YouTube, and, and the Atari versions have the best frame rate. The, the rest look oh. really slow. I mean, the, this, the Commodore is almost a half clock speed wow. on the CPU. So, so yeah, the Atari is the, the version to own. Oh, that's yeah, sweet. None, none of the other versions are close, to be honest. Yay! Um, I spent quite a bit of time looking into it, but I do remember reading in one of the interviews, I think, that we were talking about earlier, that the uh, programmer actually said that they wrote the game with the Atari in mind. So, therefore, it was, um, you know, any other version was never going to be as good because it was written for the hardware, so. Mm, that's cool. So, yeah, so I wanted to, to, to add a, a little note here, really, which is about um, a uh, another version of the, uh, other versions of the games uh, for Atari machines. But the first one I wanted to talk about was, uh, actually, a, a remake was made for the Atari Jaguar um, a few years ago called Fallen Angels. And uh, it's really, really interesting uh, story and uh, a, ve- a very good game as well. I mean, it started off as literally a demo um, by a guy called Dr. Typo, who had previously made a, a couple of other Jaguar homebrews, most notably one called Tube, which is a very impressive kind of 3D Tube-style racing game. But um, he'd made a, a demo um, to generate a fractal landscape, which he, he just called Moonlander. And uh, when people saw it, they obviously immediately thought of um, uh, Rescue and Fractalus and uh, suggested that he he maybe turn it into that. And he came back a few months later with Fallen Angels, which is essentially a, um, a Jaguar version of that game. But um, I should actually correct myself there. He wasn't using a fractal um, generator. He was actually using a voxel generator, hmm. um, otherwise known as a height map engine, I think is, is another... Um, term for it but um it's incredibly impressive it's it's easily one of the the most technically impressive jaguar homebrews you will see and it basically copies um the whole of rescue on uh fractalus like for like so you do exactly the same things um he copied the intro um and everything so it's a really faithful kind of remake of um of the atari 8-bit game but um in 64 bits so um it's free to download um, anyone can go and just grab it and burn it to a um, uh, a CD if you want to play it on, on the Jaguar CD. Or if you're lucky to own something like a skunk board, you can um, download the ROM onto that and play it that way. Um, so it's I mean, it's completely free. I'm, I'm not really sure why he's never never done an official release of, of, of it, to be honest, because it, it's actually better than a lot of the, um, the, the commercial Jaguar games out there. So... I strongly suggest anyone with a Jaguar um, goes and checks out um, Fallen Angels. And, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't realize you could just burn it. Like, is there anything involved in burning it to CD? Because I've done that for a few homebrews on the Dreamcast, and there's there's a little special thing you need to do to have like two seconds of silence at the beginning, and that's like basically it. And then your data comes afterwards. But like, do I mean, do I just stick no. a CD in my drive on my Linux laptop and like dump an ISO or? You, you you pretty much can yeah you usually wow. get a disc, disc juggler um the jaguar um it does have um encryption do need encryption but most people release the games with encryption built in already so for example you can download an encrypted image already so that would you would need to to mess about encrypting files or anything like that um jaguar cd the jaguar cd was developed by philips so it uses a very standardized format so actually it's as for all intents and purposes it's an audio track so yes. it, this struggler just treats it as an audio track. 
It's as simple hmm. as that. You just got to make sure you burn at the lowest speed humanly possible. Um, but if you've got the preview version of Disk Juggler, it, it, it automatically makes you download it, um, burn at the slowest speed possible. So you can't really mess it up, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's pretty easy. If you, and, and the only other thing with the with the Jaguar CD is it's it's a bit temperamental in um, the types of discs that it likes. Um, it tends to only like darker ones, but I strongly recommend if you do want to buy some CDs to, to, to burn on, I recommend verbatim because I've never had a problem with verbatim CDs and the, uh, the Jag. They've always seemed to work perfectly. So they seem to be the, the, the brand of choice when it comes to the Jaguar CD, but it is amazing, amazingly easy to, um, to, to, to burn. And you can actually go and download, um, you know, a, a DVD inlay and everything. So you could actually make your own box box sort of copy of it if you wanted to anyway um but if you do want to see more as well i have actually got a, a decent video of, of the game on my on my youtube channel as well actually if people want to sort of walk, just go and go and watch it and see what it's like but yeah it's, it's well worth checking out but uh other there also been a um a recent um pc remake even um for windows which is just called um fractalus but um as of um 24th of august 2015 it wasn't yet finished um so i've put the link for where you can get that it was there also there was a port being worked on for the um 7800 which sadly was never released and i always thought it was quite bizarre because obviously the 7800 got a, a an incredibly good version of ball blazer um arguably the best version of ball blazer um i mean fantastic so it would have been interesting to see how the um 7800 port would have turned out had it been finished i mean it could well have been the uh, definitive version i think yeah i'm looking at some screenshots on uh, atari age right now and, and it looks like it had some at least whoever uh, it could be emulator or whatever um but it looked like some of the landscape rendering is a little bit screwy like all of a sudden half the sky is dirt when it should be sky mm. um, but it looks like they have a sun it looks like they actually added a, a sprite of a sun that probably goes around the sky and and sets for the night mode so yeah, I mean the interesting thing—the interesting thing with the the 7800 would have been that you've got the the the, the CPUs um, just as fast as the the obviously Atari 8-bit, but the big advantage that the 7800 had it could display more colours on screen, mm-hmm. and it also had far better sprite support. So that would have been the you know interesting to see um, how it would have turned out for those reasons because the it wouldn't have slowed down at all with with more enemies on screen and things like that. So it would have made it would have been interesting, I think. Um, and there was also two more, two further Lucasfilm games um, that used the same engine as Rescue and Fractalus, which were uh, Coronus Rift and the Eidolon. So um, they're worth taking a look at as well. They came out for the both came out for the Atari 8-bit as well as numerous other machines. I guess it's also worth mentioning that um, I'm not sure if it's a the fractal effect seen in Rescue or more of the kind of hype map effect seen in Fallen Angels on the Jaguar, but there's definitely been some uh, some demos on the Atari 8-bit, uh, like demo scene demos, where they, they replicate that effect, um, usually with some really nice shading. So it's it's more than just like sky and dirt, maybe a little bit of outline to, to show some terrain, but it's actually like 16 shades of of planet you're flying around. So it looks they look really cool. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they could produce today. Yeah, with, with all the new advancements or at least knowledge of the system, the tricks. So where can you buy this game? Well, Best Electronics has it for twenty nine ninety five, U.S. dollar, uh, new in box. 
or you can get it for fifteen ninety five uh, U.S. dollar cart only. BNC Computer Visions has it for twenty nine ninety five U.S. dollar uh, new in box and twenty U.S. dollar in carton box. And eBay as of January two thousand seventeen XE cart thirty seven to fifty five U.S. dollar. Epix disc around ten dollars. And then we got Activision tape twenty to sixty dollars. Yeah, I was surprised by that. Yeah, that is unusual. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's rare. I don't know. Yeah, it would probably be a lot cheaper if you got it from Europe. I'm, I'm a bet. Hmm. Yeah, or Brazil or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I would imagine it was probably a lot more common on tape over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And other ports and reviews. Well, we got Antic Podcast Interview Number Thirty Seven. It features David Fox, and Seven Hundred Game by Game Podcast features the prototype games and we'll have those links on our website so i guess it's time to review and i will start so i knew this game as behind jaggy lines as well um and i got a copy of it and played it for forever and then i found out that it was actually a released game (laughs) which i was very surprised with so uh as far as graphics go i give it a 10 i think this really basically extends the hardware as far as it possibly can go. I mean, these guys were skilled developers, and um, the game is just uh, beautiful. It just really just it immerses you in the environment. And, of course, you got the fractal-generated landscapes. That was first to ever be done, so that's very impressive. Um, the running, the pilot coming at your ship looks very realistic. The uh, atmosphere of the planet got that smog effect. The day and night change um, over is just impressive. And even the laser blast from the um, gun emplacements are cool looking. Very like reminds me of Star Trek. Sound of music, I give it a nine. Uh, the sound effects uh, are. Much more complex. They, they don't just sound like a you know thrusting sound. You know, it actually seems like it's layered. Uh, lasers sound a little more zappy. Door knocking is kind of cool. Metal floors. I mean, there's a metal floor that running up the metal stairs is cool. Uh, very immersive, and the music is very theatrical. Gameplay. Uh, give it a nine again. Uh, uh, jump scare alien. The first impressive. I mean, I even got scared the first time I saw that. If I remember correctly, uh, the cockpit is very expressive. I mean, there's so much information. I look at, like, Star Raiders and the information it gives there. But this is essentially like a flight sim to a certain degree. I mean, it, it definitely uh, it definitely is impressive. Um, but I would always suggest people read the manual uh, in this case. I don't generally read the manuals, and I wing it. In this case, this is this is a game where you read the manuals. Unless you listen to this podcast where we tell you everything. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just, it's just like Star Raiders. I mean, if you fire up Star Raiders, you're just staring at a star field, and you're like, well, what do exactly. I do? Phew, 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 I can shoot at, the, <laughs> I can shoot at space. Yeah. Thrilling. Yeah, yes. so you got you got to know that, like, you want to turn your shields on. You want to look at a map. You actually have something you need to go do now. Yeah, so that's that's the same here. It's the same deal. It's even more complex, though, because in, in Star Raiders, you just turn your shields on all the time. In this, you have to turn your shields off, or you just turn your system off, or you'll fry your pilot, so... Uh, you have a variety of enemies, obstacles, and challenges. I mean, you got saucers, gun emplacements. Watch out for the mountains. Uh, the jaggy down pilot. You got to worry about your fuel. Um, you got when you're flying at night, you have to worry about you know fly by instruments. That's cool. Um, although some aspects of the game difficulty are uh, just an effect of adding more things to it. Uh, that's generally typical of these games of this era. And you're given far more variety of challenges. Uh, so, I mean, it really is like, it's it's the same thing, but it's more. Presentation, I give it a nine. Uh, the box is 
is uh, uh you know it looks like a pretty much an XEGS uh, game. You know they got the nice blue border with the picture, which is very nice. Um, and of course the the image itself looks like something from you know a Rogue Squadron novel. It's it's pretty nice. And um, the back of the box is a little less impressive, but it still sells the game. Um, the in-game stuff uh, is some of the best I've seen. I mean, you have the Lucasfilm logo. Um, you also have the, uh, you know, it's using like graphics mode 9, which is very colorful. Uh, the launching a ship down to the planet is also very cool. It's just, I mean, it's just the best. The manual is where I'm a bit disappointed. I mean, the disc version was so beautiful. It was so nice. And they just went to this black and white thing, and I'm just so disappointed. It's still just, it, it covers everything. It's just Tramel! Like, I know. It's like, <laughs> his, his manuals are always cheap. His manuals like, are always cheap. I mean, that 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 photocopy <laughs> of the cockpit. <laughs> You're lucky it's not on toilet roll, honestly. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the text is there. It's just the, 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 the presentation. Just, ah, you would have got a 10 if you just didn't do that. But I give it a, a strong 9 as an overall. What about you, Bill? All right. So, um, you know, I've played this game on and off, but not in any kind of amount of depth for some stupid reason. <laughs> so, so in preparing for the review, I, I played my longest game so far. I started on level four and then I jumped up to eight and then I jumped up to 12. I just figured why not go by fours, I guess. Um, and then I took a beating and crashed myself into crashed myself to death, basically on, on level, <laughs> level 16. I just like, okay, well that's, that's, that's how you can actually end this game once you're good at it and, and playing a difficult level. Um, I got about, uh, 42,000 points, and I didn't oh. actually, I didn't actually ever get to nighttime, but I did see dusk. I saw nighttime's coming. Um, so I need to go back and play this a lot more, I think. Um, graphics, uh, I give it a 10. Obviously, the 3D terrain is awesome, and it's got a really good frame rate. Um, you know, I, I don't know how I came up with these numbers at the time when I was making my notes, <laughs> but I'm, I guess, I think I was guessing somewhere between 8 to 10 frames a second. Um, the fog at the higher altitude is very cool. Um, the mountains pop up on the horizon. Uh, they got this better with Cronus Rift. Yep. Um, they used a lower resolution uh, mode with higher color, um, and the terrain is, is more kind of hilly than mountainous um, to kind of make up for those pixels. <laughs> <laughs> um, the close-up sprites, um, I was kind of amazed. Like, your shots as they fly out and, and the UFOs as they get close um, are actually, I mean, it's all one big solid blob of color, but, like, it changes angle as you bank. Like, you can actually see that the UFO is going to the left as you're swinging to the right or whatever. Um, and, yeah, as you mentioned, they, they seem to spare no no expense with the uh, the pilot and alien animations um, of them running up and the alien smacking your, your window mm-hmm. with his big alien fists. Um <laughs> So the the incredible looking mothership in the uh, in the kind of load or intro screen um, with the Valkyrie flying out of it, um, and to me it wasn't just the use of the sixteen grayscale mode. They could have been done with that, and it would have yeah. been as good as, as good as what Atari did, like with a robot demo or something like that, right? Where it's sure. just like, wow, that's sixteen colors, amazing! But they actually yeah. mixed in yeah. some player some player missile graphics for some colors. So you see li- little blinking lights on the outside of the the, the mothership um, that are not gray; they're like orange and green and stuff um and there's actual animations of the ship like the ship kind of rotates around in certain places right. and a little bit you can see it's like a very active this mothership's doing stuff it's kind of like yeah. that one five with like it's not just a thing sitting there like deep space nine where it's like wow that's a big model it was actually like rotating here and there and yeah. stuff um so very cool and um 
And yeah, like I mentioned before, I was really like pleasantly surprised that all the different blinking lights on the cockpit actually have meaning. Like the ones that seem to be random at the bottom, they start doing stuff that has meaning. And if you're paying attention, you can actually use it to your advantage. Um, Me, not so much (laughs) because I'm trying not to rip my wing off on the side of a mountain. Um, Sound of music, I gave it an eight. Uh, I like the title music and the end of game jingle. Uh, or, I'm sorry, the end of game music, um, and then the high score jingle, if you're lucky enough to get a high score. Um, the high pitched jet engine whine is a little annoying, but it's also very impressive that they got this like, yeah. like wow, that actually sounds like I'm doing something in my ship here. Um, and yeah, everything you could expect to have a sound effect seems to have one. And, and like you said, Michael, they're all really done well. Like, they're not just like, beep, boop, beep, beep, like, yeah. oh, we'll just make a high pitch noise for this thing. They actually, like, they put some effort into, like, how, how do we make this Atari make a metal clanking sound? Okay, there we go. Yeah. Um, so gameplay, I give it an 8. Um, conceptually, and as a tech demo, I find this game awesome, and I'm glad to finally own a copy on cartridge. Uh, back in the 90s, I saw just a pirate copy of Jaggies, I think, or, or maybe, uh, I might have actually had a pirate copy of, of the full game. Um, but yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't hang, like, I looked at pirate stuff, and I never really kept most of it. I just kind of like, oh, look, oh my god, somebody put this game up, let me see what it looks like, okay, and then I'm done. Um... But yeah, uh, until playing through it for this review, I never really bothered looking into all the controls. And, uh, you know, woe is me if I hadn't already known how to play Star Raiders by now. I'd be, I'd be that guy, like, shooting at stars and like, this game's dumb! Well, there's no point in this game! Where's the bad guys, right? Um, so I didn't, I didn't really get it, but now I, now I appreciate it even more, um, since I know how to play. But it, it is a little tedious, like, as you said, it becomes, like, alright, level 15! Yeah. More of the same! But even more of it! Um, but yeah, so for, for presentation, even the XC version, I give it a 10. I really love that they thought to go back and use the console keys to offset the keyboard controls. You guys remember, uh, summer games last time, right? It needed a keyboard. Why did it needed a keyboard? So you could enter your friggin' stupid name at the beginning. And that's like the only reason it needed a keyboard. And they could have just replaced that code with something where you use the joystick, like on a high score screen, up and down to change the letters and push fire or whatever. No, like, well, no, we'll just slap the, at, you know, requires keyboard sticker on the box and, <laughs> and yeah. be done with it, right? So, I mean, not to, not to put, not to disparage, it was obviously going to be an amount of work to convert that disc game into a cartridge, but it's like they could have gone that extra step like they did here, and it was very confusing that nobody bothered doing that, so. Yeah, I agree. Um, the cockpit looks great. Uh, the intro is very cool. And, um, it's a thorough manual with kind of an engaging story. And also, get a load of the trademarks that Lucasfilm took out. Etheric navigation system, V-Wing, Dirac mirror shield. <laughs> I mean, every freaking thing, that they, every word they used in this game that had never been used before, that they're just throwaway terms that it's never going to get used again, was trademarked. At What's least it had a TM what, next to it. Yeah, what's funny, though, is it says, do not call it a V-Wing, even though they trademarked it. <laughs> Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think they were kind of making a little bit of a Star Wars joke. They're like, ha, 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 don't call it a V-Wing. It's a Valkyrie. And like, oh, crap, V-Wing, trademark, Lucasfilm. <laughs> <laughs> so overall, I give this game an 8. Um, it, it's it's beautiful, and I, I love having it. Um, I, I might need to get into it more to kind of creep up and become a super fan. But at this point... I think I might still rather play, like, if I'm in the mood for something like this, I'd probably go back and play Star Raiders. Ah. Um, I will definitely, like, I will definitely show this to anyone who says, well, what can Atari do? I'll go, oh, you want to know what an Atari can do? Here, let me show you this, right? But 
you know, it's like it's like I'm kind of not into sports, but I can appreciate the fact that like sports is hard and it's you, you got to be amazing <laughs> to do some sports. It's just like, eh, I don't need to watch basketball. I'm, I appreciate that they can do it, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, Kieran, how about you? Okay, so with uh, with my review for Rescue and Fractalus, um, I um, share similar thoughts to the other guys and went with uh, Graphics Nine. I think they uh, really pushed the system. They used the hardware of the Atari to, to, to really really good effect. Um, it's 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 hard to uh, fault them um, really in uh, in any way. I think uh, maybe if I was being ultra critical um there could have maybe been a, a little bit more variation in colors but i think it's 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 hard to be to be too critical of the uh the graphics because they were doing something certainly very 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 new so certainly a high nine i was quite tempted to go with a 10 but uh i stuck with a nine uh sound and music um i went with an eight um i think it's genuinely um generally sorry all very good but uh, nothing, I suppose, particularly outstanding. Um, but uh, you know, again, you you can't really criticise them in any way. It, it, they did a really solid job um, with all of them. The the one thing that I always have always loved from Rescue and Fractalus though is the sound of the uh, the pilots when they're knocking on the uh, airlock door, wanting to come in. Um, I really do love. I love that sound. I think it's it's excellent. We should put a Poe quote in there about uh, rapping on my chamber door. <laughs> <laughs> Gameplay, I went with a nine. Um, funny enough, when I bought my uh, Zegs, I got a fantastic deal on it. I'll still still don't forget. I've been after one for quite a while, and then I was randomly looking on eBay one day and saw one for. For fifty pounds on a buy it now with fourteen games, and it was complete with the light gun and keyboard. Wow! And absolutely no yellowing. The whole thing was pristine. <sighs> and uh, so, as soon as I saw it, I just went bang. Thank you very much. You're mine. <laughs> and uh, of those fourteen games that I got with it, Rescue and Fractalus was one of them, and it was easily the game I spent the most play uh, most time playing. I can remember that once I figured out the controls, because I didn't have any instructions, so I remember looking online and trying to figure out what the controls were, but once I did figure them out, I spent a, a long, long, long time playing it. Uh, definitely, probably the only game I, I probably played more, actually, was uh, Star Raiders 2, but I didn't get that with my my XC game system. I bought that later on. Um, yeah, so, so it's a big favourite from that point of view, and it's got good memory of, um, of, of when I bought it. Although that was a menu memory from a few years ago, but... Uh, Still a good memory, nonetheless. So, uh, yeah. Uh, presentation, um, I went with a 10. Um, I think it's easily got one of the the, the best intro sequences of any uh, Atari 8-bit game. In fact, I, I cannot think of a of one that has a better intro sequence, um, to be quite honest. You know what? You know what's interesting? It, it just it just occurs to me that the game goes from that loading sequence with the the mothership and the Valkyrie. And then, it, and then it drops you right in the level select, um, like the, the launch bay, basically. It yeah. doesn't, like, you, you don't necessarily have to escape the universe and go to the menu screen to start the game. You can go straight from, I'm in space, I'm flying a spaceship, I'm on a mothership, to now I'm actually first person point of view, like, foo, launch down to the planet, like, with no interruption. 
Indeed, which is, yeah. Which is, yeah, like it, it occurs to me that's a really good choice on their part, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, then you you know you have the cut scene in the game as well, because also, of course, when you go up to the, the mothership, you've then got like another almost small cut scene again. It's almost like um, they were really ahead of their time, because that's something that's really common in modern games, is using those cut scenes to introduce the games, bring in the next level, things like that. And, I mean... It, it's kind of, I suppose it's because it was Lucasfilm and they were a film company, so they were giving right. it that kind of film look. But there's something, you know, it's very ahead of its time in, in, the, in the way it, it, it presents itself, I think. Um, and, and as others have already said, I, I do like the box art, but I, I like that, that, I always like the look of the, the Zegs boxes in general. I think that blue, the blue border really offsets the pictures really nicely on most games. Um, so yeah, uh, and I went for an overall of, a nine, I think it's. I think it's definitely up there with the the best games on the XC game system. And as I said, I think I can probably only think of one game um, that I've played that I've played more. So um, I can't wow. recommend it highly enough. So yeah, yeah. I remember like Alternate Reality had a nice intro screen, but this is definitely up there with. I mean, top top. Oh, definitely. That's that's that is another good one. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good shout. Yeah. Yeah. So we got some external reviews. Uh, Moby Games gave it a 4.1 out of 5, and those are user ratings. Uh, Atari Mania has it at 8.9 out of 10, and that's 14,000 reviews. That's what, it, that's what it said. I <laughs> mean, unless, a... unless their database is broken, I don't know. I'm going to click that link and double-check what it says now. Confirm that, but yeah, that's a, that's a still pretty good. Um, pretty good. I mean, it's right up where we are. So. Yeah, 13,000. 882. <coughs> uh, <coughs> Sorry, random coughing fit. Can help it. <laughs> it does, you don't believe in that score, I. <laughs> you oh. you protest. <laughs> Summer Games is their their score was at a uh, 80 votes. Am I looking at? I'm looking at votes. I'm looking at votes. This game, I don't know. Maybe maybe a bot hit it. Yeah, I, I think don't so. know. I don't know. Somebody, maybe one of the developers wrote something. <laughs> <and say, laughs> I'm gonna bump this up. Changing his IP every time. Yeah. And uh, we have a security breach. <laughs> so, video game critic for the 5200 gave it uh, their own review, an A, and uh, user critics or user reviews out of six, they gave it an A minus. Budget games. Such a deal. So, a budget review uh, this time round is uh, Advanced Pinball Simulator by Codemasters. And uh, we've talked a little bit about Codemasters before, because if you go right back to the first episode I was on, um, when I did it as a separate segment, the game I talked about was uh, Fruit Machine Simulator, um, if you remember back then. That was uh, another Oliver Twins game, Fruit Machine Simulator, and... uh, also by Codemasters. They didn't release many games for the Atari 8-bit, um, but this was one of them. And uh, the title pretty much tells you everything you need to know. It's an advanced pinball simulator. And uh, in fact, my, my memories of this game were from playing the ZX Spectrum version as a kid. And uh, if you had the, the 1 to 8K machines like uh, I did, um, when you booted the game up um, after you waited however long it was for the tape to load, it actually used to have speech that went advanced pinball simulator. Um, but sadly, the Atari version doesn't have that. <laughs> so it even used to introduce itself. It was quite cool. 
So they could, was, they, they, they could have used that audio track. It could have been playing awesome music the entire time it loaded, right? They, they could have. I mean, I yeah. don't know why. They, they could have put the speech in. I, I, I assume it was probably memory constraints because they were yeah. probably programming it so it'd work on a 48k uh, mm-hmm. base base model. But um, it was designed by the Oliver Twins, as I've already said, Philip and Andrew. Um, so hello to them. They're, they're, they're friends of mine as well. So I happen to know the guys personally, and they're, they're, they're great guys. Um, but uh, the Atari 8-bit version itself was actually coded by Hassan Mehmet with graphics by Terry Lloyd and sound by David Dunn. So from the description from the actual the Oliver Twins' own website, um, which is well worth checking out, they describe it as a fast, furious and incredibly addictive pinball game featuring track doors, rollover lanes, mega bumpers, four flippers, bonus lanes, extra balls, ball trap, mystery tube, realistic movement and much more. And the funny thing about uh, I must mention here is that uh, if you go and look on Atari Mania at the box art for any Codemasters game, but you can go look at this. One thing that they were famous for is they used to put quotes on all over the tape inlays. And sometimes those those quotes would be from like a magazine, you know, what score they gave it or what they said about it. But they often just used to make their own quotes up which was hilarious. So sometimes it would say like the best game ever, Richard Darling. And Richard Darling was the guy who owned Codemasters. <laughs> they put like some quote from the guy who owned the company about how great his own game was. And it's, it's pretty hilarious. It's, it's worth going and checking out um, Codemasters um, tape inlays to see all these quotes, you know, that they used to put on their games. But fair play to them because it bloody worked. They sold so many copies of their games. I mean, they, their games constantly topped the charts in the UK. I mean, constantly. Um, you know, BMX Simulator, which was uh, another one um, that was on the Atari a bit as well, was was top of the charts absolutely ages. Um, so uh, yeah, it worked, and that was that was actually another Oliver Twins game as well, BMX Simulator. But Moby Games um, say it was part of Codemasters' original budget price range. And it was a pinball game that put fast and furious action first. The table design features extra flippers on both sides, which are at the basis of sections of features. The best scores can be achieved by repeatedly bashing away at sections of blocks. The essential theme of the table is magic and wizardry, with the targets to be lit, including the words magic, as well as a weather potion and a magic cottage. Trapdoors must be shot open to get their bonuses, then shot shut again to prevent the ball being lost in them. Extra balls are offered after every 10,000 points. Um, a good thing that I should point out this this point actually is that the game does actually have a plot, which is incredibly unusual for um, a pinball game, especially um, budget games. They didn't often put a lot of effort into explaining things like plots. But um, I don't think I've ever experienced a pinball game before that has a plot. And the funny thing is, as well, it's not just in the inlay of the game is that when you actually start the game up on the title screen, it gives you the the option to, to sit there and read the plot, which is um, certainly very different. I can't think of another um, Atari 8-bit game that actually does that. Uh, there is up to three players available. Um, obviously, you take it in turns to play for see who can get the high score. Games played with a keyboard using the uh, Z and forward slash uh, keys on the left and right side of the keyboard so uh, they were trying to sort of um, emulate a, a pinball table with that I think um, doing it like that 
and space pulls the plunger and launches the ball. So uh, on the menu screen, space also moves between the options and return just selects the one you want to do. And on the high score screen, P and L move up and down the alphabet grid to enter your into your name. So it was it came out for quite a few other machines. I already mentioned that I experienced it from um, the ZX Spectrum, which was the original version of the game, along with the Amstrad CPC, because the there were certain similarities with the hardware. So the Oliver Twins actually used to develop all their games on an Amstrad CPC, um, but then do the ZX Spectrum version alongside it. Um, and then it was also then it was ported by other people to, to to other machines. So there was also a Commodore 64 port as well. So uh, where to buy? Um, you just really have to have a, a, a search on eBay. Um, it's the five to ten dollar range in the US. Um, you could probably easily pick it up for about a fiver um, in the UK. It's it's um, it's a pretty easy game um, to find. In terms of the reviews of the other versions, um, I picked up quite a few review, review scores from um, Moby Games. The German magazine ASM rated the game nine out nine out of twelve. Strange scoring system they have. And that was the, the, the Amstrad CPC version. Those crazy Germans and their crazy scoring systems. A nine out of twelve. Um, your Sinclair magazine, which is my my um, Spectrum uh, magazine of choice back in the day rated the game 7 out of 10, solid score. And ASM again, that, that crazy German magazine, rated the ZX Spectrum version 8.2 out of 12. So not only did they have a weird scoring system of putting out of 12, but they added points in as well just to make it even <laughs> even stranger. And then two games that are basically identical, the, the Amstrad and the ZX Spectrum one. Yeah. Got different, different ratings yeah. for some reason. The Amstrad version's better by 0.8, even though they're, they're, t- they're near enough identical apart from graphics. Yeah. 0.8 out of 12, which, what is that, out of 10? Or Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't know. I can only assume maybe they liked the Amstrad more. I don't know. Um, Ace Magazine, um, or Advanced Computer Entertainment, which is what it stood for, they only reviewed the Commodore 64 version. And you, I love Ace's scoring system because it's it was absolutely bad. <laughs> maddest scoring system you've ever heard and they rated it 595 out of 1000 so when people complain to us hey guys how do you do your 1 to 10 rating system how do you yeah. tell 9 from a 10 like i want to know how do these tell a 595 versus a 594 you know like I know. If, I, if i have only five bucks to spend on a game i'm going to get the one that gets 595 points yeah. not 594 points but i want to know why all right anyway i'll shut up now <laughs> Yeah, it was. Everyone used to to laugh about Ace and their their scoring system back in the day. It was a pretty decent magazine. Um, it was almost like a predecessor to Edge, really. It was a similarly sort of um, more adult aimed magazine, but their scoring system was mental. Uh, Computer and video games, which is the UK's best selling uh, games magazine, they rated the Amstrad CPC version fifty percent. So they were they were the first people there we've seen that didn't like the Amstrad CPC version because power um, power play magazine also didn't like the Amstrad CPC version because uh, they gave it 39%. So it was generally um, a well-received game from, from my memories of it. And um, you certainly seem to see a lot of people talking about it. And when we were doing the Oliver twins book, when I was asked to get involved, um, 
we we compiled a list of the games that people most wanted to see in the book and uh, that was one of them so that kind of does show that it's um still a, a very well remembered well remembered game and for me personally actually i should add, add this in um i love pinball games absolutely adore them i still enjoy playing pinball games this day even on like my xbox one i have like pinball arcade and stuff like that and um that was the first ever pinball video game i ever played was um advanced pinball simulator so that kind of sparked my love of, of pinball video games so another review to mention is uh chinny vision on youtube did a really good video that compares all the different ports um, including the Atari 8-bit version. So he thinks on that, he said it. he, th- he suspects it's a simplified port of the C64 version, and, uh, but he considered it the easiest one to play because of the slower ball physics. So I will let uh, Michael do his review of the game, and uh, I'll come back in a moment. Well, I'm also a big fan of pinball. Um, uh, when I used to go to the arcades, I played one of the classic pinball games, Cyclone. Hey, yo, what the fuck? And um, I also played a pinball construction set, David Mi- David's Midnight Magic and Night Mission on the Atari 8-bit. But, I mean, I, I think the pinball really started to shine in the 16-bit era. I mean, the, although mm. you had the ball physics, I think that uh, you had more screen space to kind of spread it out. You need more of a... Uh, a tall screen than a wide screen, but they're still quite fun. I, I, I do enjoy them. Let's go into graphics. I give this a seven. I think it's a definitely, definitely done by a competent artist and um, the playfield has a really nice color. I think it's done very well. The border around the playfield is very nice and they give kind of a 3d effect. The scoreboard is also very impressive. The digital score uh, characters top notch. Um, but this game was made in 1989 and it doesn't seem to show off the Atari's uh, specific capabilities at that time. I would have seen, expect a little bit extra. Um, but it was a budget game, so I'll give it um, more points for that. You, know, you got it for cheap. Um, sound, I gave it a six. Uh, the intro music is uh, is there, but it's it's a bit haunting. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there, but it was a little creepy. Maybe that was close to the whole theme of the whole thing, because I know the was- wizard. Yes, exactly. So maybe Who dares? I, was like, I didn't know if it was random noises or there's the creepiness, but uh, the bloops and bleeps aren't bad. Um, but they're definitely better in something like David's Midnight Magic, which which was poor. But I'm guessing the sounds on that were generated originally on a less capable machine. Uh, gameplay, I give it a six. Uh, it, uh, very enjoyable to play, and you get up to three players, which is awesome. Um, the pinball physics seem pretty realistic i'd say semi-realistic you have the ability to hold the ball which is very nice but i found the ball control on the flippers was a little hard to get and the plunger was very you know you didn't really have a lot of control on that as well but um i had a terrible time getting the ball in the upper left hand corner of the screen so i don't know if that was me or um you know the the game itself maybe i'm just not very good but i think that has something to do with the flipper control uh playful layout is slightly more horizontal than vertical so i think that kind of is one of the issues with the old epic games um Mm. so it does affect the flow a little bit but Still, it's it's. I think it's still done very well. Um, I wish you could bump the table. You know, I mean, you have a little bit of tilt action. I I don't think yeah. that was available. So, because I sometimes wanted to kind of uh, uh, a little bit, of, uh, and I couldn't do it. As far as presentation goes, um, 
the pinball game has a plot, like you mentioned, and that is totally unique. I thought that was awesome. And it looks like it incorporated in the game. I saw play, uh, changes in the game uh, that kind of mimicked the, the story, so that was really cool. And, of course, the cost custom font uh, character set and it had a very nice intro screen. So out of all, I get a 6.5, but I'll round it up to a 7. All right. Um, I'm not really a pinball aficionado. Um Growing up, uh, the weird, complicated 80s and 90s pinballs uh, took up valuable space, uh, in my opinion, um, in the pizza shops and arcades where I felt more arcade games should have gone. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but after going to Pinagogo um, recently in the last couple of years, which takes place at the uh, next town over, basically, from where I live now, um, I actually discovered that I like pins, um, but mostly ones from the 50s, like the uh, electromechan- oh, wow. electromechanical ones that go tick, 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 with the scores, right? Um you know, flipping the score numbers around physically. Um, so video game pinball-wise, the one I'm used, most used to is uh, Bill Budge's pinball construction set, which you just mentioned, Michael, um, which I grew up with as a kid. I, I still have that floppy disk oh, cool. uh, hanging around somewhere. Um, and I'm sure I've got pinball games that I tried making floating around on some floppies that I haven't looked at in 30 years. Um, a neighbor kid had a uh, video pinball on the 2600, which I also really liked, even though it's like kind of an abomination when it comes to pinballs. It's this really mm. wide screen with a giant yeah. square ball and stuff, but it's, <laughs> but it's hella fun! Um, <laughs> so I, I, I now own that one as of a while back, and I also picked up uh, Midnight Magic, Magic, not to be confused with David's Midnight Magic. Um, I know. I know, right? It's really confusing. Um, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a really good game, though, the, the 2600 Midnight yeah, Magic. I think yeah. it's the better game, to be honest. Yeah, I have that for the 2600. I also have the um, the port that um, was it Ferron did uh, mm. from from the 2600 to the 8-bit, um, which which was pretty incredible bit of work. Um, so, hey, if you have, if you don't own a 2600 but you own a, an 8-bit, you can still play this game we're talking about here. Um so uh, I also picked up a, a PlayStation 2 disc of pinball games, which I played a little bit when I first got, but then you know I, I couldn't find Starjet on there or something, or, or I have to unlock it. I hate games where I have to unlock stuff, um, so I, I haven't played with it much. Uh, so obviously I'm not much of a, a video game pinball coin sir uh, <laughs> um, Nice. So uh, while I suppose the simulation of a pinball game is somewhat advanced, I get the feeling um, you can do at least as much in, in construction set, uh, which I, I have a hankering to play with again now that I've played this. I'm like, I want to make, I want to finish trying to make Starjet on the Atari. Um, <laughs> yeah. Try to try to do a little pixel art on there and stuff. Um, so ratings wise, uh, graphics, I gave it a six. I would have given it a higher rating, but after looking at the other ports, even just the Commodore 64 one, um, they all looked a lot better. Like. Things looked like things that they were supposed to be, rather than just like big pixelated things. Like the, I didn't, I didn't understand that volcano at first until I read the little story. I'm like, what is this weird thing at the top? <laughs> this blob with random pixels? Is that some computer thing? No, it's supposed to be a volcano. Um, Sound of music, I gave it a five. Uh, my comment was the bells, the bells, the spinner sound. When when you, you the ball goes to the spinner, it goes. And it sounds like somebody's office ring phone is just ringing off the hook. Like, oh, somebody answer it, please. Um, gameplay, I found it sluggish. I mean, I, I know that it was Ginny Vision mentioned that it was easy to play because it's slow, but I, I found it kind of sluggish compared to the few video pinball games I've played. Um, and like you, Michael, I found it abs- like almost impossible to get the ball to the upper left side of the play field. And then when I get it up there, it would just drop back through. Like it, it yeah. would go through something that I thought was solid. But it would, yeah. 
so it's like it sounds like from the description that that's intentional but like i have this is why i don't play pinball i have no control of what the hell's going on like i know i'm supposed to, there's things i'm supposed to do in a particular order and like how am i supposed to do this with a ball i'm not i don't have that capability as a person um <laughs> The flipper has two positions. It's either all the way down or all the way up. And like, even on the 2600, the flippers actually have a little bit of motion, a couple of frames of animation, and you can actually take that to your advantage, um, by, by hitting it a little bit prematurely, or, or letting go of it a little prematurely after, after the flipper's all the way up. And you'll hit the ball, you know, in a little particular different bank or whatever, rather than just always up the same direction. So in this one, I was kind of, I'm like, okay, well, that's what this game is. And then I watched Shinivision's video, and every other single version seemed to have flippers that actually look like flippers and actually move up and down, like animated. Um, so I didn't like that. Um, and then uh, keyboard control meant that it... Like at least for me, maybe I wasn't releasing the key quickly enough, but like I'd be, I hit Z and then I'd go to hit slash, and like the right flippers wouldn't move. And I guess it's because I hadn't completely let go of the Z key by the time I hit the slash key. And I think with a joystick or with like a pair of paddles with two distinct fire buttons, that they're not going to interfere with each other because you can only read basically one key on on the Atari keyboard at a time, not counting like shift and control and stuff. Um, so having it be the keyboard controls, which I can totally understand on a system that is less likely to have joysticks, using that on the Atari to me seemed like, well, why would you do that? Like every other game has, you know, left for left flipper and right for right flipper and up for both flippers or fire for both flippers or some kind of combination of that. Um, or, you know, since left and right button are basically the paddle fire buttons, uh, or, I'm sorry, left and right joystick are um, like the two paddle buttons on paddles. Um, you could get away with using paddle controls too. So uh, I don't know. It's, to me, it was like wow, and it's it's hard to play. It's slow, and like it's also physically difficult for me to play this game. So I, I that ranked it pretty low. Um, presentation, I did give it a seven. The menu isn't bad. Uh, I did mention, but yeah, Michael, as you said, the font is pretty pretty whimsical, yeah, and and cool, and it has that storyline in there that you can read, which is which is neat. Um. So overall, I give it a six. I, I said here, uh, if you figure out a strategy for this game, like actually be able to go up there and, and beat the little bushes or whatever they are to, to get to the <laughs> volcano and like your rainwater magic potion or whatever it is, um, I, I think you might like it. But if you're not a huge pinball fan, like I'm not, uh, I would call this one a pass, sadly. So, Kieran, how about you? You picked it, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it better be good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, so as, as far as scoring goes, I, I went with graphics an eight, and um, the reason why I did that was because one thing that I didn't like um, when uh, my, I had my first experience of pinball on the Atari 8-bit was actually with, with David's Midnight Magic, and I didn't like the fact it was so drab-looking because it was just all in monochrome um, on, uh, on on the Atari 8-bit, and it it just looked to me it looked so boring and horrible and pinball in real life is a really colorful thing um and that was a it, it, I, yeah it was a real letdown for me uh david's midnight magic after especially after having been um so used to playing the the brilliant 2600 version when i was a kid and uh so when i saw that that there was a atari bit version of advanced pinball simulator i was pleased to see that they'd done it in in color because so many of the other atari 8-bit pinball games weren't and uh they, I, they did it without making it look too blocky as well um so i think they did i actually think they did a a really good job in, in getting it look like that when um it was based on i mean if you look at the 
the Spectrum version, for example, which is nice and colourful, but the, the Spectrum can do higher res graphics um, than, than the Atari 8-bit with, with colour, although it, it has disadvantages in other ways. So they, they did a pretty good job of, of copying that over, I think. Um, you, you could always do player missile overlays to, to kind of highlight some things, but yeah, it's not... I realise that's not the same as like the mm. the more exact colours you get like on a C64 or, or the Spectrum in, in the higher yeah. resolution mode, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was one thing that you know they 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 obviously could have improved them by doing things like that, but they weren't going to do things like that on a game that cost two pounds. And that's always the context you've got to take with these yeah. these things. So they were porting games in a matter of weeks. Oh my god! To sell to sell them for two pounds. Yeah. You know that that wasn't a lot of money um, at all. You know, uh, sound sound and music. Um, I went with a seven. Uh, the music's is pretty decent. Sound effects okay. Some of them are a bit annoying, as people have already said. Um, I do think they could have done uh, quite a bit better with the sound effects. I get the feeling um, that the, the guy who did the sound hadn't really worked with the Atari before. And looking up his name, I couldn't really find any other references for him either. So I'm pretty sure he just wasn't very experienced with the pokey and probably did the best job he could in the limited amount of time he had to do something. Um, gameplay, um, an eight, because I've always enjoyed this game. And the key to it, I think which elaborate on some of the things that other people have said is it's like you kind of said it already that you have to do things in a, in, a, in an order. You have to unlock parts of the screen. So you can't do the volcano until you've other, uh, unlocked other things first. And once you know how the, how the gameplay works, um, I, I find it uh, highly enjoyable. I think it's a, a, a decent representation of, of, of pinball on the, on the Atari. Um, presentation wise eight i think uh it does really well here um good opening screens the cassette inlay i think is great the packaging and stuff look, looks looks superb uh, i've already mentioned about about checking that out so um yeah overall i went with an eight as well i've, I've kind of mostly gone with eights here um it's still um a, a game that i have a lot of nostalgia for from from my, from my childhood and uh i was pleased that the Atari 8-bit version held up well against um, the, the ZX Spectrum version that I remember, and I think it's it's a fun game. I think if you like your pinball, um, you, you'll especially enjoy it, especially if, as I've kind of already mentioned, you're used to those other Atari 8-bit pinball games that have the the you know the the high res but monochrome graphics. You know, and this goes for a different look with the chunky chunky color graphics i think it offers something quite different to a lot of the other other pinball games on the um on the system so it's a couple more mentions here it does actually say on the um inlay uh that it got uh 80 from games week magazine i also was mentioning earlier on that they did like putting these little little things on the on the inlays and uh on atari mania it's currently at six out of 10 from 17 reviews so it needs about 42,000 more reviews to (laughs) indeed yeah i'll get right on that (laughs) (laughs) all right so time for some uh user feedback to our podcast um so from episode five, uh, there were a couple questions for Kieran, uh, but since he wasn't with us last time, we wanted to give him an opportunity to give his uh, two cents. Who wrote this? Two, 
two pence, right? It would be two pence for you. Um, it would be, yeah. <laughs> on some of the uh, questions we got from our listeners. Um, so Rob, uh, host of the Player Missile Podcast and author of Omnivore, the Atari 8-bit binary editor and Jumpman level editor, and who knows what else it does today, had asked, um, I had a question about your ratings. Could each of you give us an idea of how your personal rating scale works? Like, for instance, what would it take for a game to get a 10 in a category and maybe give an example of a game that gets a 10 for that category? I'd be curious uh, so I could have a basis for comparison. So, Karen, have you got any thoughts on that? Good question. I get asked this quite a lot, actually. I bet, because uh, you do this like more than just in this podcast. Mm, exactly. <laughs> and my, my thought has always been on this. I've settled... Um, for quite a few years now on, on the out of 10 system because I think it's the one I prefer and I think it's the easiest one to understand and uh, I remember we had a little bit of a discussion about it when we started this podcast about um, the rating system we were using we've revised it since but there's uh, quite a few people out there who have this opinion that you can't give a game a 10 because if you give a game a 10 it means it's perfect I do not subscribe to that opinion I believe that if you're giving a game a 10 you're saying it's one of the best games on that system. So it's the game, you know, you judge everything else by. So there are games on lots of systems that I would give a 10. I'm, he, to give an example, he said, could I give an example? I'm not going to give an Atari 8-bit example. The reason being is because the first game I would think of will be a game that we're going to cover on another episode. So I, I won't want to... Um, to give that away right now um but uh for example is, a game... is, is, is it popeye it's popeye isn't it <laughs> <laughs> a game that i would give a 10 i'm gonna i'm gonna go for um an example here i'll i'll, I'll use the atari jaguar i'll use that as an example for me i would give um there's a couple of games i would give 10s on that system um tempest 2000 would be a 10 for me yep and uh, missile command 3d would be a 10 for me as well um both outstanding games that have literally no faults and uh, are, are without doubt the best games on that system. So that's why I would give them tens. Um, they're, they're faultless games on that hardware. Um, and I'm not comparing the games on other hardware. It's always purely for the system that I'm reviewing them on. So uh, I might take a multi-format game. I might give it a, a nine on one system, but a seven on the, on another system, because on that other system there's much more competition in that genre. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so also, uh, Adam Trufino, host of the Bally Alley Astrocast podcast, asked. Uh, Kieran rated Donkey Kong an overall score of 9, even though he didn't like it. He said he couldn't help it because, as a professional writer, he could not let his opinion enter the review. However, that makes no sense to me. I believe that because he is a professional writer, he uh, should use his personal opinion to help shape his review. So what do you say to that? Yeah, see, this is something that, that someone's brought up before. And this goes back, actually, to when I very, very first started writing professionally. One of the first things I was told is that when you're reviewing or talking about games, you should never let your personal bias sneak into your writing. And I understand why, because I've actually seen accounts of where people have let their personal bias sneak into reviews or articles, and they've got absolutely hammered for it afterwards by people who have either said, what is that person doing reviewing that game if they didn't like it? It should have been given to someone who would like that game um, or that style of game. And the other chief criticism I quite often see will be 
Um, why are they marking that game down just because it's a style of game that they don't like? That's just petty and unfair. So I was always told to look at a game, um, try to look at the game impartially as, is this a game that people would like if they enjoy that genre, that genre, that specific game? So for example, I do not like platform games. I, you know, I've never have done really. There's, there's, it's not a genre I enjoy. I don't enjoy RPGs, for example. But I have to try and say, you know, are they good games? You know, what constitutes a good game? So I can clearly understand that to, to me that Donkey Kong is a good game and I can understand why people would enjoy Donkey Kong and why it's a classic. But it's not a game that personally I enjoy playing. It's, it's a, I suppose it's a hard thing to to quantify for a lot of people. And I can I can understand perfectly understand why he said that it doesn't make sense. And where he says about personal opinion, um, there is a certain amount of personal opinion in a review, um, but I, I I don't think you should be saying this game's rubbish because I don't like platform games, because I think then it comes across as being petty. I mean, a, a good example I could give is I hate Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> but that, I hate it. Absolutely hate it. I mean, Mom I can't mia. think of... I can't think of many games I would play le- rather play less than Super Mario Brothers. Put it that way. Another okay. example would be Legend of Zelda. I could say the same thing about that game. But are they bad games? Of course they're not. Yeah, Zel- if they Zelda. They were bad games. They wouldn't be regarded as all-time classics. Yeah, Zelda is a game that that I I want to like because I can see that it's good. Yeah. It's just it's just a hard game for me to get into, and and I I find yeah. it difficult. Um. So yeah. So yeah. I, I kind of understand that. In some cases, it's it's going to be like. You have to ob- objectively look at it and say, like, does it have the things that make a game good, even exactly. if it's not, even if it's not up my alley. So, yeah. um, so I've probably failed quite a bit with my reviews here when it comes <laughs> to doing that. But like the rest of us said in our in our last one, we, uh, the other three of us, are not professional reviewers and, um, you know, basically take things that are at a grain of salt um, from us and Indeed. just, you know, enjoy, yeah. the, enjoy the rest of the show. And, you know, you can agree or disagree with our yammerings on about like, why well, I think it sucked because X. And if, if you actually like X, then you're probably going to like it. So um, exactly. But I think it's nice that we come at things from different perspectives anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because we're giving a more rounded um, view of things. I think, you know, there's, there's me being the professional and there's, you know, say um, David being, being just the, the, the the couch fan do you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 nice i think you yeah. know yeah and like i said with with rescue it's like the, it's a game that i don't think i would get into but it was definitely be one of the first games that i would show people to show off what the system can do and what a really good game could be yeah. and, and have all of the theatrical elements and all that stuff but it's it's not quite as much of my t- cup of tea as star raiders for example so i would probably yeah. go for that more more readily so mm. okay <clears throat> so i guess moving on let's see um the real bounty bob wants to let our listeners know that issue 11 of uh i never know how to say this i don't we have like between me and, and antic uh do you know how to say this proc p-r-o parenthesis and parenthesis atari magazine i've never i've never been sure i've pro c atari magazine i i would assume it's pro c um but that's how i've i've said it yeah. myself but yeah it's a funny argument let's get into the gif gif it's those crazy germans for you again <laughs> That's what it is. 
I wonder if it has a mathematical meaning or programming meaning. Anyway, um, so. yeah. So it came out back in October and uh, was a so-called light gun special. Um, Jason TRBB Kendall uh, gives lots of hints and insider info for repair, playing light gun games in an emulator using a mouse, and reviews about two dozen light gun games, including uh, XEGS carts. Uh, it actually takes up 13 pages of the issue. Um, you can purchase a copy from proc-atari.de for two euro plus shipping. Um, and it's available in both German and English. Um, he also said that he enjoyed listening to episode five and thanks guys and gives a thumbs up. Um, and says that summer games is fun despite the annoying glitches. I think someone patched a cart image to fix the metals problem, but there's not a fixed disc slash ATR version question mark. Um, that I'm not sure. I haven't looked into that. Uh, the skill on the swimming is all about the timing. Winky face. Yes, the tedious 400 meters of hitting a fire button. Yes, all right. <laughs> um, Robbie VGB on Twitter asked, what's the best way to play cassette images on the XCGS for budget games? Um, and I responded that obviously a 410 or 1010 or XC11 program recorder, uh, as long as it's... Um, uh, rubber thingies are, are intact, um, plus physical cassette tapes would work. Um, .cas for cassette uh, files can be converted back to WAVE audio files, and some people have uh, also posted collections of raw FLAC uh, audio recordings, so really high-quality auto recordings of tapes. Um, so you could use A8 CAS tools or CAS to WAVE. Um, there's actually, uh, we'll have a link to the Tape Preservation Project at atari.org.pl, um, as well as the A8CAS and Wave2CAS and CAS2Wave tools uh, at various other sites. Um, it looks like there was or is uh, CAS2SIO software, um, which was used for uh, for use with uh, SIO2PC cables, um, and I think APE uh, can simulate a program recorder as well. Uh, personally, what I do is I just use the Atari 800 emulator on my Linux laptop and then the .cast dumps uh, that you download from like Atari Mania. Um, and then I use a Stella adapter and some real joysticks like a CX40 uh, to actually play the games. Um, but uh, later I will have an update, uh, which you'll hear about in a moment, um, to follow up on my responses to what I put on Twitter. Um, well, I'll add to that slightly um, in terms of the, the playing budget game since it's by... Um, segment <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, i did mention earlier about the the atari max that's a good way to play them because you will find on atari mania that there are actually um uh cartridge images bin images for for near enough all of the budget games that we've reviewed uh most of them do work funnily enough P- pinball simulator doesn't it doesn't ah. work the atari max i'll have to double um, so check someone needs to fix that because it <laughs> didn't work last time i tried it but a lot of the ones we've reviewed so far there is actually images that will work from an atari max car so that's, that is another way to do it and talking about the um the uh, cassette files you can actually get apps um for phones as well that you can use so you can plug your phone in um to to the atari to to play the the um the audio files that way yeah into the computer as well so you can literally use a you know a phone or a tablet as, as, a, as a tape player um i think one of the the programs is called tap dancer or something like that um that you can use but there are programs out there that you can use to to, to do that as well which is quite a clever um little technique 
Cool. Yeah, I know. Like with the with, with my Timex Sinclair, so I'm presuming like the the Spectrum, um, it literally had mic and headphone yeah. jacks. So you just hooked it up to a tape recorder and hoped that it worked well. Um, whereas on the Atari, it goes to the SIO port. So so it's you a little bit more complicated. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Need, you need a converter in the middle to to, yeah. to sort that part out. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, and that that actually is semi-related to to what I'm going to talk about cassette stuff uh, in a bit, but a little bit different. So um, that's interesting. But first, though, uh, we'll go on with um, Wade, host of the Inversitaski podcast, uh, sent a tweet directing us to the spring 1987 issue of Atari Explorer, which was Atari's official magazine. Um, that was Volume Seven, Number Two, for the librarians out there, and it's where they announced the uh, XEGS. So I looked over it. And, and we've had discussion about is it XEGS or ZEGS or game, XE Game System or what is the name of this damn thing? Atari themselves, in their magazine, they called it a variety of names. The Table of Contents listed it as the 65 XE Game System. And then page number for the article. The headline of the article itself said the Atari XE Game Slash Computer. And then within the article itself, I read the whole thing, and, it, and they called it the Atari XE Game System with lowercase g and s a few times, Atari XE Game System with uppercase g and s, which is what I'm the most used to, um, XEGS a few times, XE slash GS only once, and then XE Game System uh, without the Atari in front of it a, f- a few times as well. So even they didn't really know what to call this thing, <laughs> apparently. Um, they compare the system, positively, of course, to the Mattel Aquarius and Intellivision uh, computer add-ons and the Coleco Atom, which, you know, admittedly, at this rate is, you know, they're like four, five, six years old, probably, at that point. Mm. They did not know which arcade game would be built in. Uh, spoiler, it was Missile Command. Uh, they also mentioned an 8-bit port of Battlezone being in the works, which uh, never officially came out, although I think there are prototypes floating around that you can download. Um, so we'll have links to where you can download scans of the issue and other uh, Atari Explorer and other magazines in our show notes, including at Atari Mania, Internet Archive, and Digital Press. Um, and then my final thing here, uh, Near Dairy, um, who we know from Antic Podcast, uh, their international correspondent, they call him, um, and he now has his modern Atari 8-bit YouTube channel, uh, pointed out that we somehow forgot to mention the new game Laura, uh, which was also released during Silly Venture 2016. Um, it's a very impressive action-slash-puzzle game, which has support for submitting your high scores to High Score Cafe uh, and a level editor for Windows. Um, and m- m- I apologize for missing this. I-, I guess I skipped past it, because while it was released at Silly Venture, it didn't take part in the competition, um, like Pang and At Aryan Line did, which is uh, the two other games that I mentioned from them. Uh, from that event. So I was apparently staring at the competition results over the DemoZoo website and didn't actually notice. <laughs> like, I knew about Laura, I've, you know, and like, <laughs> there's, suffice it to say, there's so much new stuff for the Atari that I can't even keep track. And, and I consider yeah. that, I guess, a good problem to have. I mean, every it time, uh, my, Michael, um, who has had to step out because we're getting late here, uh, is, is trying to work on a, a basically a, a, database of different storage options for the Atari. So like your Atari Max Flash cart and Ultimate SD cart and SI02PC and SI2SD and yada, yada, yada. And basically every other day I look at Facebook and I go, hey, Michael, here's another one. You better add it to your list. <laughs> so uh, Antic just mentioned the S drive, uh, like a little m- tiny micro version of an SI02SD apparently, or like a, a new revision of that. So that's yet another one that we have to keep track of. But... Um, Anyway, so Nier also sent us, uh, the hosts of this podcast, um, a set of XEGS game cart ROMs uh, ready for use on the uh, Ultimate SD cart. Um, 
And uh, budget games that were converted in this case, so you were talking about bins for Atari Max. Yes. These are standalone so-called XEX programs. Um, so uh, I could boot them from SIO to SD, or I can boot them from the Ultimate Cart. So um, that apparently is yet another solution, is to find these cassette games in a different format, in, in a disc format. Um, I guess one other thing to go back and mention, though, is with the cassette games, and I've mentioned this before, um, some of them are going to be PAL only, or at least work best in PAL. And in that case, um, you're either going to have to use an emulator, or you're going to have to use the trick like I do in, in one of my uh, Excels, which is to swap the... Uh, PAL antic chip uh, in and replace the uh, NTSC antic chip. Um, so anyway, we'll have a link to uh, Nir's uh, YouTube channel um, as well as the website for the game Laura. Uh, the website is in Polish, but I uh, discovered that Google Translate does a pretty fair job at converting it to English. Um, Just to add to what you were talking about there before with the um, Atari Explorer magazine, mm-hmm. uh, Battlezone, there is an XE version of Battlezone. The Atari 8-bit version of Battlezone didn't come out. The there was it was supposed to have come out on the 5200, which was released, and the Atari 8-bit version wasn't. Like they did with a lot of games to try and sell the 5200, they never released the 8-bit version. Same with um, Berserk, Vanguard, a few others. To make it they held, like yeah, exclusive they held on back, yeah, to make it exclusive on the 5200. Obviously, those games are available now. Mm-hmm. But there is a remember there is an an XC version of Battlezone that Atari Corp did later on, which is by far the better game, which has all the the vet, proper vector graphics and everything. So that's what they would have been talking about in the article. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, I must I must yeah. have got my wires crossed. Yeah, yeah. too many games. <laughs> yeah, and also it reminded me of something. I've got an old scan of an article somewhere which I must try and dig up. I think it was from computer video games magazine over here and it's actually an interview with the guy who is head of atari um uk um his name escapes me right now uh when the um xc was being launched over here and he mentioned it as the 65 xe game system hmm. i do remember that he here's what he called it and he was obviously mooting it as um superior to the the Spectrum, that's what he spent a large part of his article <laughs> talking about because that was the best-selling computer over here and mentioned how, you know, it could play cartridge games like a console, but it was, um, you know, a better computer than the Spectrum and it gave you the best of both worlds and all that kind of thing. But I specifically remember um, him referring it to this as the 65XE game system. Well, I mean, basically, um, yeah, that's the closest system it probably is mm. uh, comparable to. It just has, you know, yeah. the attachable keyboard and the, the game. Exactly. In. And interestingly, they, Atari originally had no plans to release the, uh, the 7800 over here because they, um, felt that the, uh, releasing the 7800 would affect sales of the, um, XE game system, which was their preferred product. They, they wanted to release the XE game system over the 7800. But then when they did release the XE game system, they found it didn't sell as well as they expected it to. And um, because the 2600 was still selling so well, it was it was still selling in massive numbers, they went ahead and changed their minds and released the 7887. So it did get... And it sold very well over here as well, so... Well, as we've seen with the Nintendo Wii, and now now the Switch is coming out, that it's it's you know it's a crapshoot sometimes. Like, mm. is my is my system going to be popular and <laughs> and long lived, or is it going to tank within a year like some of these other systems? So, 
Yeah. Thank you, Kieran. Yep, thank you. Um, and good night from the UK. Yeah. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. In our next episode, we'll have a lip-smacking review of Food Fight, and we'll put our lives on the line for you by participating in the deadly budget game, Death Race. You can find our latest episodes, news, and information on our website, www.xegs8bit.com. We also have links on there, so you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd like to thank Computer for giving us permission to use her song software as our show's theme song. You can visit ComputeHer at ComputeHer.com. That's ComputeHer.com for more information. Also thanks to the folks who contribute to and maintain the Atari Mania database, Wikipedia, and other fine results of Google searching. We are part of the Throwback Network, a group of podcasters with one thing in common. We all love old things. Whether it's old video games, old movies, old toys, or simply old stories, the Throwback Network is the place to find them all. Visit throwbacknetwork.net to learn more. We are also part of the Retro Junkies Network, a network of like-minded retro enthusiasts who like to keep things clean and family-friendly. Our content ranges from retro gaming, retro movies, retro TV shows, retro music, and basically anything retro that is worth remembering. Find us at theretrojunkies.com. All right, we're pretty flub-free so far. It's not going to be much editing, I hope. No, we shouldn't really say that. They probably, but um, yeah. <laughs> well, I, we all we all flub, but yeah. <laughs> Cursed it. You've joined the Elite Rescue Squadron. Sorry, you've joined the Elite. Elite. <laughs> Was that sign? Cyanitric. 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 Yeah, cyanide. Cyanitric. Right. Glad I'm editing this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I luck. can make all the mess, 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 screw ups in the world because I'm editing. <laughs> yeah, don't go crazy with that.